Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore, and today we're going to be talking about Black Mirror episode San Junipero, which, as a Netflix original production, is currently available pretty much anywhere you can get Netflix. Today's episode of the Netflix Podcast is brought to you in part by Springboard, London, Ontario's premier digital creative industries development program. Visit joinspringboard.com for more information. The Netflix Podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams Podcast Network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original content, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into things, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. First, this conversation does contain spoilers for San Junipero. In fact, the format of this episode will be a bit different than you might be used to since my guest Jeremy and I went blow by blow through each plot point of the movie slash episode slash whatever this is to make sure that we didn't miss anything. As well, some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into it. I'm excited to be sitting down again with one of my favorite all-time guests. You've heard him here before talking about The Human Centipede and Jaws. Welcome once again to Jeremy Hobbs. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, good. It's good to be back. Um, I just want to point out that uh, this is the first time I've ever done a Netflix podcast on my own. Um, no safety net this time. Right, right. Not you free-fallen yeah. <laughs> with Netflix. You don't need a safety net. So for anybody who hasn't heard you before let's break the ice a little bit with my favorite question is there anything interesting or cool that you've been watching on netflix recently jeremy netflix um well i just uh last night finished uh watching the defenders series the the netflix marvel universe stuff i think is really good um it's the shows themselves are very hit or miss some are much better than others and there's obviously good episodes and bad episodes stuff but so but i just i just want to plug just as a whole the entire kind of concept and universe of this thing because um, it's the first time, you know, like there's so many different people doing all the different franchises and some of them overlap and some of them don't. And there's like the X-Men universe and that's kind of like different from the, you know, the Thor universe and the Iron Man universe stuff. And in terms of the cinematic ones and like so- some franchises overlap depending on if it's the same studio or this or that. But what the the Netflix universe thing has done is it's really created its own little world that's really consistent like it started with daredevil like uh drew goddard and and whoever else did that um and they set up the whole kind of hell's kitchen thing and then that carried over into jessica jones which is probably the best one of all the the netflix franchises you know and then uh it was luke cage and then iron fist and then now the defenders is like the the hybrid of all of them together um and like i said i mean they're they're hit or miss both series wise and episode wise but just the, the the whole vibe of it i think is cool because uh you know it's a lot darker and more adult than the uh cinematic universe ones 
um, the world is a lot more kind of believable and gritty and urban. And, 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 and sometimes they make like vague reference to, to giant events and stuff that have happened in like the Avengers movies and stuff. But mostly it's very isolated to um, Luke Cage, I think, is in Harlem and, and uh, Daredevil and Jessica Jones are in Hell's Kitchen. And I can't remember where Iron Fist is, but they're all they're all closely related. You know, they're all like neighbors. And uh, and so, yeah, like and, they, you know, and they have they have uh, some cool actors in there, like, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio and Carrie Ann Moss and Rosario Dawson and stuff. And a lot of characters and actors bleed over from series to series. And so I just watched The Defenders and uh, it wasn't amazing. <laughs> but right. but I mean, there were definitely like a lot of problems with it. There were there was some kind of, you know, corny plotting and, and, and awkward writing stuff. But um, but it is the one where they sort of got everybody together. And some, sometimes it was cool, you know, like sometimes it was neat seeing them kind of meet and interact and uh, how they kind of play off each other. And they're all kind of standoffish to one another and, you know, and, you know, surly and stuff like that. But but as a whole, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, perfect, <laughs> but uh, but very mixed bags. All of them people are always asking me, like, you know, to put them in order of of good to bad. And I think I'd say like Jessica Jones is probably the strongest had a great villain. What's his name from Doctor Who? Uh, David Tennant. David Tennant. Yeah, it was a really great uh, villain. Once again, like you know, a, a fairly three-dimensional kind of uh, villain. Uh, you know, and, and it, that that touched on some pretty serious issues as well. You know, like uh, in that, and also, um, yeah, Daredevil. You know, I think was fairly solid, especially the first season. But yeah, it, it's it's kind of uh, like any like any comic book series. Like mm-hmm. you know, a writer comes on, does like a twenty or thirty issue run and it's amazing and then the next writer comes on and it totally sucks you know it's like or one like a spin-off will be great another spin-off will be terrible so it's kind of but but at the very end of the last episode of the defenders there's like a little you know kind of 90 second teaser for the punisher series that's coming soon yeah it's this month is it this month is it coming this month that's interesting to me because uh because the punisher was my number one favorite comic book character when i was a kid like Mm -hmm. i had all the original Punishers and Punisher War Journal and like all that kind of stuff, you know, and like the pun- the mini series and everything. And uh, he was just like my number one fave. And it's always been a frustration to me that essentially he's never ever been done justice uh, in any of the movies. You know, they made that pretty bad Dolph Lundgren film in like '89 or whenever, which you know was it didn't really have much to do with the the classic uh, mythology or anything. And then, uh, and then they did the, the one with Thomas Jane, Jane, which was pretty bad in its own way. Uh, You know, I thought Thomas Jane was a good punisher. I I thought Thomas Jane actually did uh, like a good job as Frank Castle, but the movie itself was pretty terrible. And then there's that really bizarre Punisher war zone. Is that what Mm -hmm. it's called? Where it's just like, so insanely over the top and violent and just really bizarre. The only time uh, pre uh, Netflix Marvel universe that Punisher had ever been done right is this like kind of ten minute fan short called Dirty Laundry uh, that uh, that a bunch of fans I think collaborated on and wrote and stuff and then they somehow wrote uh, Phil Joanneau the, the the relatively famous director that did like State of Grace and stuff like that into directing it and Thomas Jane like reprised his role as the Punisher because I guess he himself was always a really big Punisher fan and always. Like, I don't think he thought that they kind of got it right with the movie he was in either and always kind of wanted to take another stab at it. And so they mm-hmm. got him back and did this little 10-minute short called Dirty Laundry, which is on YouTube. And it's actually, like, pretty amusing. And so like, this one thing, this one 10-minute thing is better than all three of the previous Punisher films put together. But it was refreshing <laughs> to see in Daredevil Season 2, uh, what is it, John Bernthal? Is that what yeah. his name is? Shane from The Walking Dead, right? He actually 
had a pretty good take on Frank Castle. I feel like they actually did him justice. They had mm-hmm. to obviously kind of um, bump <clears throat> his backstory forward a bit to the Gulf War as opposed to Vietnam, like in the comics. But um, but I thought I thought he was a pretty good uh, Frank Castle, and I thought they did the character mm-hmm. justice and portrayed him with the equal amounts of um, villainy and heroism, you know, kind of, because he's such a complex kind of hybrid character. Yeah. Have you ever listened to How Did This Get Made? No. The, it's the really popular movie podcast where huh. it's three comedians and a guest sit around and talk about like bad movies and just like okay, okay. How, did, how did this get made right 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 but they did a special episode where they had Lexi Alexander on who directed mm. Punisher Warzone talking right. about it and how like it was I think it was the first wide release R-rated comic book okay movie or it's definitely R-rated <laughs> Yeah, and, and there, like there was something about it, how she was like the first woman to direct a comic book movie, yeah. and how this is the movie that like basically blacklisted her because I mean, women notoriously, women directors notoriously don't get second chances if right, you have a movie right, bomb. Right. And, uh, well, it's kind of a gamble to, to take that on as like your first <laughs> film or whatever you know. Or I think it was your, her second your first comic book film, maybe because yeah. I mean, it's notoriously like. You know, I, like basically every Punisher movie has been terrible, and so it's kind of you're kind of <laughs> taking a gamble when you kind of. You know, uh, sign on to the franchise. Uh, it, it's interesting to point out, though, that her uh, Punisher film was by far the most violent and gritty. It was. It was just like, I mean, it was so. It was so violent. It was almost like overkill or something. It was just. It was. Uh, it was just really, you know, grimy or whatever. You know. Um, <laughs> her next project is really interesting to me. It's called Crossface. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a biopic of Chris Benoit. Okay, so for her to do, do a risky project with yeah, Punisher yeah. Warzone, and then like let's take this murder suicide sure, professional yeah. wrestler and try to yeah, turn it into a yeah. compelling movie. Yeah, Spe- so speaking of murder suicide, did you see the movie Christine uh, with uh, Rebecca Hall about the um, that? I'm not sure if it's still on Netflix, but it was on Netflix. They just added it recently. Did they just and, add I, it? and I thought of you because yeah, I remember you saying that that's your favorite terrific, movie of that year. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific film, and I I just want to plug it because um. I don't even want to spoil it. I could, I could just say in like one sentence what it's about, but it would be a huge spoiler. There's, let's just say like, you know, there's this Floridian journalist named Christine Chubbuck in 1974, I think, when the incident took place, um, who was trying to assert herself as a journalist in this really like male-dominated kind of patriarchal, uh, uh, you know, work environment. And she kept trying to do these really um, community-based uh you know, like uh, piece, pieces about like humanitarian kind of pieces about like the community and stuff. And, and all this station wanted was just like uh, car accidents and blood and guts and stuff like that. And she was getting really frustrated. And then because she was a woman, like she didn't feel like she could get, um, you know, the amount of sort of screen time or big, big stories that lo- like a lot of her male coworkers got. And she was also battling um, uh, some kind of undiagnosed like clinical depression or bipolar disorder or something like that. And it, it just kind of boils over and, and and winds up in her doing this, like, completely insane and kind of heartbreaking thing on, like, live television. Uh, and uh, I'd, I was familiar with this story for a long time. I, Robin Bougie wrote about it in uh, Cinema Sewer. And it's just been sort of like one of those, like, weird kind of YouTube phenomenon kind of things. And, uh, you know, and so I was already really fascinated with her as a person and with, the, you know, this kind of her story and everything like that. But I saw the movie at TIFF a couple of years ago. And when I found out they were doing a film of it, I thought like this could either be really good or really bad, you know, because the subject matter is so, so touchy and kind of personal and stuff. You know, I mean, you it, it could be exploitative very easily with it. But it was, it was really refreshing because, you know, I saw it and it's just a really well made, really well crafted film. 
and uh, by the director of a, of a small indie film called uh, Simon Killer, which was shown to me by Jason R. Gray from your uh, guest podcast recently. Uh, so, uh, so you know, props to him. And uh, so, but this, but this is uh, this was a much more mature kind of uh, more intense work and um, the sophomoric effort by this director. I think I'm trying to remember his name is Antonio Campos. I think is his name. Uh, but the material was um, handled very, you know, respectfully, and um, and it was just a like a really well crafted, well made film. But I just have to say, like Rebecca Hall, who's a British actor, who you would have seen in uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona with Scarlett Johansson, the Woody Allen film, and um, uh, the Town, the Ben Affleck movie. She played the, the the female lead in that. But but she's normally very uh, very beautiful and feminine and, and, and ladylike and very uh, demure and whatnot. And in this film, she does like a complete transformation. She, she, you know, everything from like her voice is like she drops her voice an octave and she, she carries herself in this very awkward kind of lanky kind of manly way. Like she's very um, socially awkward when she's talking to people and, and very, always seems very stooped and, and, and uh, and and she does a, like a flawless American accent. She's normally has a like a fairly thick British accent, and she, it's just like you know having seen her in other stuff, you know, it was almost unrecognizable. And I, I was so convinced when I saw this film that she was going to win the Best Actress Oscar. Like I just said to everybody after a tip, I said it, it's in the bag. It's Rebecca Hall, you know, like hands down, like no contest, right? And then not only. Did she not win? But she wasn't even nominated. Like her performance wasn't even mentioned uh, at the Oscars. It wasn't even a. She wasn't even a, c- a contender. And and then the Oscar went to Emma Stone. You know, and and after watching both like La La Land and Christine, like it, it just. I mean, no no offense to Emma Stone, but just the, the caliber of, of performance that Rebecca Hall delivers in this film, Christine is, is just. You know, it's 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 terrific. You know, and I just felt I felt sad for her that she didn't get more recognition for it because well, she's getting her props on an obscure Canadian podcast. Now. Exactly. That's, that's, exactly. Better than, that's better than any Academy. Rebecca award. Hall, this is for you. <laughs> well, the movie that we are here to talk about this episode is from the year 2016 from director Owen Harris. We're going to be talking about the black mirror episode, San Junipero. Indeed. 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 Let's take a look at how Netflix describes San Junipero. When I, when I read the, those descriptions, uh, you know, I always hear it in that, the, the announcer voice, you know, like, in a world that defies both space and time. I wish you know, I could do that. Two women doing it. <laughs> would meet. You know, and it's like. Here, you wanna, here do it again for me. Okay, in, hold in the on. Voice. Wanna, in the voice? <clears throat> okay, hold on. In a seaside town in 1987, a shy young woman and an outgoing party girl strike up a powerful bond that seems to defy the laws of space and time. Or something, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> How's that? That's perfect. I think there's about I think there's about four of those guys in the world. You know, they just they've all you know contributed about twenty five percent of like a- every movie voiceover that's ever ever been made, and they're all like ninety eight years old now. So <laughs> yeah. This is this is throwing off my groove a little bit because normally I I, sh- I talk about the genres that it belongs to, but because this is part of a series. What I will say is that Black Mirror <laughs> is normally described as both chilling and mind bending. Interesting. So, Jeremy, I think maybe maybe just do like a like a, I'll just do a quick overview of Black Mirror itself first of all before we get into the actual episode. Uh, basically, Black Mirror is a British anthology series in the vein of The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Amazing Stories, that kind of thing. Um, 
which are, you know, I love anthology series, and The Twilight Zone is actually my number one favorite uh, television show of all time. And I think Black Mirror is one of the best kind of uh, variations on, like, sort of a slightly fantastical or science fiction-y uh, uh, anthology series since since the original Twilight Zone. You know, and like any anthology series, you know, the episodes are varied, you know, it's like sometimes hit or miss. But but I, I really I really like the vibe of it and uh, and, and kind of like what, what it's trying to say. It's, it's basically written. It was conceived of and written by uh, British uh, writer Charlie Brooker, who um, had done a bunch of other stuff before that, like Brass. Eye. He, he was uh, one of the writers on, on Chris Morris's Brass Eye show, and he, and he was one of the writers on that really controversial Pete Ugedon episode that they got in a bunch of trouble for, I believe. And, uh, and uh, Nathan Barley also uh, with Chris Morris, and he did the, the zombie, uh, the sort of uh, rea- reality show zombie series Dead Set, which is actually just added to Canadian Netflix recently. It's kind of like a Big Brother, like if a zombie outbreak happened during the filming of something like that. You know, and, and he's got another, he does these wipes, these screen wipes, weekly wipe, games wipe, election wipe, yearly wipe. There's basically nothing in Britain he hasn't wiped. So so he he's the the showrunner of the series and so basically I think around 2011 the first season came out and it was only 3 episodes um and then I think a, a couple of years later they did a second season which was also 3 episodes uh and the, and these were british these were like filmed in in britain and and uh and then they did a christmas special which was kind of like a feature length episode uh, that was technically still British, but starred John Hamm from Mad Men, mm. so it kind of had this like slightly American vibe to it. And then they they got funding, I, b- I believe, from Netflix itself. Well, there was uh, a, there was a bidding war between the original network they were on and Netflix. And Netflix, and Netflix came up with right. It must have been BBC or, or Film Four or something like that. It, I think it was one of the BBC channels. Yeah, sure. But um, but yeah. So they did they did this this third season um last year I think it was or. Yeah, t- 2016. 2016. I think. Um, and th- they had six episodes this time for this season. And originally, I think it was supposed to be like a 12 episode season where they were going to have like a break. But now I think they're just sort of calling the next six season four. Or so yeah, yeah, but, it was a 12 uh, episode run spread out over two seasons. Right. And and so I was, um, you know, I was a big fan of the show before that. I I had watched all the uh, original British. Uh, episodes and stuff like that so I was already a big fan of the show but a couple years ago at at TIFF at the Toronto International Film Festival I was lucky enough to see this kind of sneak preview screening of two of the episodes uh, of the upcoming at the time upcoming season three of Black Mirror and these episodes were Nosedive and uh, San Junipero which are now the first and fourth episodes of season three of Black Mirror and Charlie Brooker was there and did a QA and a afterwards and everything like that and it was uh, super cool and uh, I'm not entirely sure why he chose these two specific episodes. Um, I'm assuming because they're two of the strongest episodes uh, in the season. San Junipero probably being the strongest episode of the entire series. And so, uh, yeah, I really dug the screening. It was really cool to hear him talk about it. They sc- it's odd because they screened, when they did the screening, they screened San Junipero first and then Nosedive. Which I I think, if I remember correctly, which I thought was an odd choice because Nosedive is kind of, it's got this blackly comedic kind of tone to it. And it has this kind of like, you know, hilariously fuck you sort of ending, you know, whereas San Junipero is like really kind of haunting and dreamlike and heartbreaking. And then it has this kind of really beautiful sort of uh, uh, haunting kind of heartstring pulling kind of ending. And so, so I, I, I thought that. You know, if I were programming, I would have ended on San Junipero. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, if 
but hey, you know, I, I don't who care am I? what I don't care what episode of Black Mirror came first. You yeah, probably yeah, want to exactly. end with Sandra. You just want to end, yeah. Just any any run of Black Mirror should end with Sandra. Yeah. So the one um, detail I want to add about Black Mirror in general, just for anybody who hasn't had the pleasure, so the kind of the shtick of the anthology series is that everything, almost every episode, is set a little bit in the future, and that there's some kind of technical or digital twist or element to it that adds a layer of sci-fi horror to almost every episode five minutes into the future as they say yes five minutes into the future so yeah and and typically you don't come away from an episode of black mirror feeling good about where the future is headed (laughs) no often feeling the exact opposite the the it's interesting because you know i mean we're just doing this one episode san junipero on, on this podcast but the interesting thing is that most black mirror episodes you know if not all black mirror episodes um, are usually quite dark and have those kind of stinging kind of endings where, you know, everything turns out horribly or the main character gets fucked over in some <laughs> inconceivably horrible way. <laughs> kind, very much like the Twilight Zone episode, uh, Time Enough at Last with Burgess Meredith. Uh, you know, the one where he has the really thick glasses, glasses, you know, and he he loves books and everything. I won't spoil it. But, uh, but yeah, like a lot of them are very much in that vein and have that kind of, uh, harsh kind of uh, punishing ending. And, and, um, once again, I want to, I want to issue a major spoiler alert. If, if you haven't already seen, uh, the Black Mirror episode, San Junipero, please don't listen to this podcast before watching it. Uh, watch the episode and then come back and listen to this. Uh, but I will say, um, San Junipero is kind of the anomaly for Black Mirror because um, it actually is the only one of the only episodes that has a kind of hopeful, uh, you know, I don't want to say happy, but but it has sort of a a more positive kind of hopeful yeah. ending than most of them do. Sure. So before we get too far into any any analysis, I want to ask why because this was this was an idea that you brought to me. Uh, you hadn't done an episode in a while. This was a few months ago, kind of mid hiatus. You had said, "Hey, I want to do San Junipero," and I, I'd remember, s- I'd remembered seeing when you came back from TIFF, you did a list of your top favorite movies from it, and I think right. you had San Junipero as your number one. It might have been. And then yeah. once it dropped on Netflix, you said, "Hey, I want to, I want to come on and talk about this." Now, months later, now that I'm right. done being an asshole and <laughs> holding it off. <laughs> Um, five so, years later. So why why did you want to come on? Why did you want to talk about it? Why why was this your, well, your pick? <clears throat> I think just because uh, it's just such a, a terrific episode of television. I mean, you know, there there used to be this kind of um, hierarchical thing, you know, you know that that, that television in in some way was kind of inferior or, or subpar to cinema, you know, especially back in the day, like back in the eighties, and you know, and which and I think David Lynch really changed a lot of that when he did Twin Peaks because he was he was the first kind of big name kind of film director to actually you know start quote unquote slum it in television but he liked the idea of being able to you know tell an ongoing story and, and not be constrained by like a you know two hour time limit or whatever but that really opened the door for a lot of people like you know a lot of people like David Chase that did The Sopranos and Matt Weiner that did Mad Men and just so you know and, and, and Breaking Bad I mean there's a lot of these shows that, that were the, the showrunners and creators have totally cited uh, Twin Peaks and David Lynch and everything is kind of like you know putting the, the idea in their head of, of doing something really, you know, very uh, cinematic and, and intellectual and something of substance for television and not just some kind of like adventure of the week thing, you know, and, you know, obviously The Wire is a good example of that. And and now now I think television, not, not only is a lot of television equal to uh, c- cinema in quality, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's even better. I mean, sometimes just being able to uh, have more time uh, to tell a story, you know, to go deeper into a story over the course of several years, several seasons, stuff like that, you know, is almost. I remember, I remember after watching the first two seasons of Mad Men, I went to go see the Sam Mendes film Revolutionary Road, 
which takes place in the same rough time period and and uh you know has the same similar vi- visual style and and similar issues are being dealt with and i just remember thinking uh, not that it was a bad film per se but 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 i just remember after watching like you know like this 2 hour film just thinking like you know that I I just didn't have time to get anywhere nearly as you know kind of embedded in it as watching like you know I guess like twenty six the twenty six episodes of Mad Men that I'd seen before that they were dealing with a lot of similar issues in 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 the same time period and everything like that uh, and so you know so television you know in the last ten or fifteen years or whatever has has really uh, become something quite quite amazing especially you know now with all the funding being provided by Netflix and Amazon and all the you know HBO and everything and just you know, the quality of work that, that's popping up. And so, you know, every once in a while, you know, someone does an episode of a show that just really, you know, blows you away. I mean, it's just really something special. And there's always various episodes of, of shows winning Emmys or whatever, Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever. Th- this one's interesting be- because Black Mirror is an anthology show because every episode can be a completely self-contained story, uh, you know, about a completely different issue. Uh, or scenario with different actors and everything. And so I, I just thought, I mean, you know, even though I, I like the show in general, uh, that this particular episode was really unique to me because um, just the, the the vibe, the feel of it, the way it was directed, the music, just the story, the writing, the acting and everything, I just thought was, was so high caliber. I thought not only, not only I think is it the best episode uh, that they've done on Black Mirror, but I think it's one of the best episodes of television that I've seen in years, in, in several years. <laughs> it's funny because I remember like reading like this Nick Cave interview, or or he 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 wrote this review of the the Alexander Sokorov film Mother and Son, this Russian film, uh, and uh, it's basically about um, well, it's like he 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 just was talking about how when he started watching the film, just like you know five minutes into it, he just started kind of weeping. Uh, like just uncontrollably weeping and then he just basically sat there for the entire running time of the film just kind of like you know qu- quietly weeping to himself uh, and and this episode of Black Mirror kind of has a similar effect to me um, I uh, when I saw it at TIFF obviously because of the way the episode's structured you know you, d- you don't really know what's going on you know probably till about you know 75% into the episode or whatever uh, when they do a, like a big reveal but um, so at the very end of the episode I remember at TIFF I remember my friend and I were sitting there and I had this little this little tear broke down my cheek you know what I mean at the very end you know like right the, the last shot or whatever this little tear breaks down my cheek but then I, I have watched this episode probably like six or seven times or something like that like since then and uh, and I keep showing it to different people like I, sh- I showed it to Jason and um, you know I, I every you know people are whenever they come over and they want to watch something and maybe don't have time to watch like a three hour film or something like that. You know, I, I put this on and, and so like no having like knowing now after having seen it once, you know, what, what exactly is going on in the episode and, and, and what all the subtext is and stuff like that. I find myself having a similar reaction of just kind of sitting there <laughs> of like quietly, you know, sort of weeping to myself, <laughs> you know, through the whole thing, you know, it's not, not at a specific moment, but just the, the, the overall like melancholy tone of the thing, you know, and, and I want to, I want to shout out, the first of all, the cinematographer. Uh, I'm not sure who the cinematographer was on the episode, but um, the whole episode is shot in these pastel tones that kind of recall like a sunset, you know, uh, like a sort of like a sun sun going down kind of sky colors like pink and blue and purple and stuff like that. And there's a lot of uh, shots and reflections of things like pu- reflections in puddles and the ocean and stuff like that. And the whole thing has this very picturesque kind of dreamlike quality to it. And uh, 
and also the score that was done by Clint Mansell, uh, who scored most of Darren Aronofsky's films. He was the lead singer of the British uh, group Pop Believe Itself, and then he started doing film scores. So he scored most of Aronofsky's work uh, and a bunch of other stuff too. But but he he created this incredibly uh, like sort of ambient umbilical kind of you know Brian Eno like sort of uh, score that just kind of undulates like the, like the waves rolling in and out you know like just sort of almost like uh, creates this kind of it kind of suspends the episode in this kind of like amniotic sack of this kind of uh, subtle music that just kind of you know it just kind of it's just always there kind of just slowly provoking you you know what I mean just to kind of it's this kind of waves of melancholy kind of washing over and so yeah just uh, even just the technical aspects of the episode uh, you know are, are quite uh, provocative in that way looks like the <clears throat> cinematographer was Gustav Danielson big ups to Gustav I'm, I'm really glad that you you brought this up because it was taking me a really long time to get through Black Mirror mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because in terms of investment of time Black Mirror is perfect <laughs> because each episode is just however long it needs to be. Yeah. You're going to be there probably less than 60 minutes. But you also have to be ready for it. Yeah, like yeah. I w- it takes a lot out of you yeah, uh, I, emotionally. I was ready to, I was like, okay, I'm finally going to do it. And I've seen, I watched the first three episodes over the course of like a week or right. so. And after episode three, that was the one that really did me in. That was the one. Right, where, the entire history of you. Yeah, the entire history. Like, that one fucked me up for Apparently, a while. Apparently, um, I think Leonardo DiCaprio owns the rights to make, like, a feature-length Hollywood version of that episode. I think somebody does. And I think it's DiCaprio. But why? You can. I don't know. These things are kind of perfect, uh, you know, uh, on uh, on their own. And, you know, the little 60-minute installments, you wouldn't necessarily want to overkill them but I did I did think though when I saw black I mean when I saw I keep calling it black mirror when I when I saw San Junipero um that this would make like a perfect kind of standalone film I mean as it is I think it's about an hour and four minutes I don't know if adding like an extra half an hour to it or whatever would just junk it up but um but I remember thinking like this this could be a film it it feels like a film it feels like a standalone film you know some of the other episodes feel more like like episodes of a show you know but this one has a very cinematic quality to it, like bo- both in terms of just like the, the writing and story and everything, and also just the the look and feel of it and everything like that. It's a very it's a very cinematic episode. Okay, so let's let's get into San Junipero. So right off the bat, within the first twenty seconds, you mm-hmm. get it beaten into your head three times that this is nineteen eighty seven. Right, right, right. <laughs> you've got the Lost Boys poster. Uh, you've got Heaven and His Place on Earth playing on the radio, right. and then you've got the announcer cutting in and literally telling you, the year is 1987. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Max Hedrum also, uh, uh, the uh, protagonist walks past like a like a TV store or something, and, there, and there's Max Hedrum on all these monitors. Oh, I, uh, I missed that one too. Yeah, so. yeah. So what I knew about this going in is that it was an episode of Black Mirror, and sure. I, knew, I knew already what Black Mirror typically is. Like I said, it's got some kind of sci-fi bent to it. It's usually set a little bit in the future, five minutes in the future, as they say, as you mm-hmm. said. That was a clumsy sentence. But I also had seen this crop up on a bunch of lists of like right, right. the best episodes of Black Mirror, and I had seen people with the blurb of like the one positive episode. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I also knew that this won the Emmy for Best TV Movie, which I thought was right. supremely cool. I, I didn't know that until a friend of mine told me that like a, a month or two ago. But but I'm I'm glad to hear it because it totally deserves it. Th- this um, it's interesting to mention as well that this is the only like so far it's the only uh, period piece Black Mirror episode. All the other episodes, like you said, kind of take place in a sort of undisclosed future, like you know five minutes into the future kind of thing. Uh, you know, it could be next year, it could be 10 years from now, but like, uh, but this one specifically, uh, is a period piece or at least most of it. Yeah. Like they'd never really done anything like that before. Obviously there's a, a spin on that. There's a loophole to that, but, um, but it was neat to see black mirror, the kind of black mirror story universes like that in sort of a, a, a very different visual setting. And yeah, they, they do do a lot of um, overt kind of nods to like the time period, like in terms of like, the billboard. It's, it's all most of it all takes place in the same street corner and in the same sort of bar, this Tucker's place. And so there's always like a uh, movie posters hanging above the theater and TVs, you know, in the TV store window and stuff like that. So, but I think, I think, uh, you know, part of that is in, intentional because, you know, like the, the entire place is artifice and it's like drawing like massive attention to like its own artifice, like, uh, like a Rolodex of different years and different, you know, this this bombarded with like the fashions or, or, uh, music or whatever of that period. And you can kind of like fl- flip through different ones. Right. And you know. I mean, that's the point that I wanted to make. And this is, I know that we've, we, we kind of want to go through this episode chronologically where we can, but mm-hmm. I mean, those first 30 seconds for me were jarring in how insistently it was mm-hmm. telling you that this is, this is in the eighties. This is in the eighties. Yeah. This is 1987. So watching that for the first time, I was like, yeah. that seems like unnecessary how much you're doing yeah. it. Like one cue would have been enough Two sure, yeah. would have been like hedging your bets but to have like three and now the fourth one that you've pointed out of just like insisting that you know where when it is, that seemed weird to me and a little bit off-putting. But I mean, we might as well get this part out of the way because I think it's going to come up over the course of talking about right, every right, part of right. this, this. Is that ultimately it's revealed that this world that these characters are living in right. is... Spoiler alert. In fact, yeah. <laughs> you like seriously spoiler alert stop listening to this. like i can tell you from experience it is better to not know going yeah, in what yeah. is going to happen it'll totally ruin it so the the world that they're living in is actually this matrix like world where people's consciousness consciousnesses is that the way to say that <laughs> consciousnesses can you pluralize that word anyway Maybe we're, just put an apostrophe after the S or something. <laughs> Con- consciousnesses. I think that's the right way to say it. So where people's consciousnesses are put into this fabricated world right. um, that, in this case, this is you know the 1987 version. And so it then fun, you know, like having that information now, mm-hmm. looking back, I'm not looking back at it and saying, oh, that's weird. Right. I'm now looking at it and saying, oh, okay, so for the characters, for the people entering this world, right. it's incredibly helpful and it's part of the tourism yeah. for them to know exactly where they are to set it apart from going to the 1986 world or the 1935 world or yeah and i think that's part of it i think when you f- it's one of those things oh, this is an episode that's multi-layered and, and demands kind of like several viewings because it's something like you know like let's say a film like fight club you know i remember the first time i saw fight club i hadn't read the novel first and um 
we were watching the thing, thinking that the Marla character, the Helena Bottom Carter character, I just kept thinking, man, what a nagging bitch this character is. You know, I just remember thinking, God, she's just so annoying, and she just won't leave these guys alone and stuff. And then I remember after after you kind of find out what's going on, and, and, and after the big reveal and everything, and everything that's you know that she's been put through, and everything you know she's been dealing with, and you watch the film a second time, and you're like, oh, this poor woman. You know, you're like, oh man, she's so patient with this guy that's just completely <laughs> insane, and just putting her through the ringer, and she keeps coming back and trying to help. And uh, and so it's kind of like that with this. I think you know. Like you said, when you when you first watch it and and you're not really uh, you know entirely aware of like what's going on, it can uh, at the beginning maybe seem like a little bit heavy-handed or, or kind of overkilled in terms of its uh, you know establishing the world or the year or whatever. But you know, and, and and part of that, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much that is is plot related and how much of that is just the fact that you know uh, you know maybe a certain percentage of television viewers are not as perceptive as yourself. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, like, you can never tell sometimes when, when something's being kind of like hammered in too hard or, or, or whether there's like a point to it. But I think when you when you get to the reveal of this episode and you understand that there's all of these little uh, sort of like time capsule worlds like 1987, 2002, 2000, 1980 and all this stuff, um, you know, that are that are really supposed to remind the characters of what that year was like and in terms of fashion and music and everything and really you know like people are probably going to travel to the the times and eras that they feel the most nostalgic for that they feel the most comfortable in or whatever and so you really want to you know really capitalize on the you know the bullet points of that year so I think by having the you know like I mean it starts with the Lost Boys poster the Max Headroom the Belinda Carlisle song everything is really saying this is like 87 but yeah, but then later, you know, the protagonist travels to other years and, and, it, and it does the same thing with different uh, movie posters and, and music and stuff like that. I mean, if I can compare this to something else that gave me that same sort of uncomfortable on the nose 80s vibe, like if you compare it to, uh, have you seen season two of Stranger Things yet? Yes, yes, I just watched that. Okay, so the, the gang in Stranger Things 2. Like the oh right the the, the, the roving the, yeah. criminal gang where everybody represent it's almost the like sort a of strange one off episode yeah where everybody's almost like a Breakfast Club of like bad guy eighties tropes yeah yeah where it's just like it seems like somebody tried really hard to capture the eighties yeah. in each of these characters that they were like okay there is this t- there this is what a punk in the eighties yeah. looks like this is what this other and yeah. so. Like, I got that same vibe watching San Junipero, but at least in San Junipero, it makes sense because people are dressing to play the part of, I know this is the year that I'm going to, so I'm going to represent that. And they are playing parts, too, because there's the the part where uh, Mackenzie Davis, who plays the main character, Yorkie, is getting ready for her sort of second trip to San Junipero, and and she actually literally cycles through all these different looks according to different... um, uh, period music that she's listening to, you know, she kind of, you know, it starts with "Girlfriend in a Coma" by The Smiths, which obviously is like a huge plot tip off to like what's going to happen later. But uh, you know, she cycles through um, like a Molly Ringwald pretty in pink look, and then like a Robert Palmer, you know, like simply irresistible video kind of thing, and then just kind of settles on her original kind of, you know, uh, modest kind of nerdy self look. Right. So as far as plot goes, I mean, we we follow uh, the character Yorkie, um, this like the dog really uncomfortable character walking into a bar that she seems like she doesn't really know how to navigate the right. space. She seems curious about the arcade games that are in the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she gets approached by a guy, and she really doesn't seem to know how to react to yeah. him, except she knows she doesn't really want anything to do with him, so she's trying to figure out how to... It's also worth mentioning that the guy she gets approached by looks exactly like Weird Al Yankovic if he was young and, and with short hair. <laughs> basically, he's just, he looks like... If you look at this guy, let's look at his face and his glasses, his nose and everything. It's, he's basically the spitting image of a young Weird Al. Um, yeah, uh, Yorkie, the, the protagonist, um, is played by um, the Canadian actor Mackenzie Davis, who I really like because she's on a really great television show called Halt and Catch Fire. I don't know if you've seen that. Have you seen that or heard of that? I've, I've heard of it. I've never watched right. it. That's it's, like the, the birth of the internet period. Yeah, it's it's very much, it's kind of like, I always refer to it as like the Mad Men of like the early 80s, like sort of computer, like personal computing, you know, uh, technology world because... Uh, you know, it, it has a very similar tone and feel and, and stuff like that to Mad Men, only in a, in a completely different period. And uh, and she plays this really wild, like, punky young computer programmer, really assertive and confident and kind of almost like bipolar, a little bit bipolar or something like that. And uh, uh, and she's really great in it and Canadian also, by the way, so props to us. Uh, but um, but it, but but it's it, personal <laughs> credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, personal credit. But but it really it, it really um, you know sort of uh, accents how good her performance is in this Black Mirror episode because she really you know seems so convincingly uh, shy and demure and awkward and self conscious. You know, she really seems, you know, like even when she like she'll start to say something and not say it or she'll, you know, just her body language and stuff, which is almost like the complete polar opposite of the character she plays on Halt and Catch Fire. Um, also, just as a little side note, she also played the um, the prostitute character in the new Blade Runner film, Blade Runner 2049, okay. uh, the sort of priss looking prostitute that the uh, uh, Ryan Gosling brings home to kind of merge with his like. AI system or whatever that he's in love with so that they can actually have like physical sex or whatever. And so that also is Mackenzie Davis. So she's getting around. She's doing her thing. But um but yeah, so she goes to this club. Um like I said, this is this is one of those uh pieces of work where once once you've seen it, like something like Fight Club or The Sixth Sense or whatever, once you've seen it and and, and you know how it ends, you can go back and rewatch it in a completely different context because already even just her walking to the club, I mean, there's there's already so many like little um, hints, like uh, you know, of of uh, upcoming plot details and stuff like that. First of all, just the music itself. Um, pretty much every song played in the episode has some kind of nod or wink or tip off, or whatever, of what's going on with the plot. You know, I mean, obviously it starts with heaven as a place on earth, and. Uh, you know, and they play uh, uh, Walk Like an Egyptian, which, you know, obviously has to do like mummification and, you know, the pharaohs thinking that they could live on after death and things like this. And they have, um, uh, you know, obviously the hugest one is the Smith's girlfriend in a coma while the Yorkie character is getting ready to go into San Junipero. And uh, and I'm living in a box, living in a box. Um, just every, basically every song uh, has some sort of uh, dual lyrical meaning or not or something. Right. There's one scene where, where uh, I think it's the b- before they wind up sleeping together, you know, when when Yorkie comes like looking for uh, Kelly, uh, they're playing that NXS song that starts with the lyrics, "All we got is this moment, the 21st century's yesterday," and then and then obviously leading up to "I need I need you tonight," and you know, it's it's sort of like I think Charlie Brooker actually said once that he, I, he made a playlist of all the songs in this episode, San Junipero, and I think he said that they're they're almost like sort of like a through line of the plot. Like if you if you listen to the lyrics mm-hmm. of all the songs carefully, they, they kind of tell you where the whole thing's going. 
Well, apparently, um, I'm not sure whether he wrote the episode first and then heard the song Heaven is a Place on Earth, mm-hmm. but I guess he was going for a run and he heard the song Heaven is a Place on Earth. And it just he was just like, this is it. I yeah. need this. I need this. And it, apparently he had like anxiety yeah. until he was able to secure the rights to use the song. Yeah. And, and apparently it came at like a really hefty price tag. And he's like, I don't care. Like, let's get it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I think he said that in the, the Q&A at TIFF maybe uh, that uh, – it was almost like securing the rights to that song was like one of the most expensive aspects of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's it's so perfect. Like yeah. it's this this foreshadowing that is also yeah. setting the tone. And, and it bookends the episode too. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but but it also it also foreshadows a line that's spoken later. That's a really great line, and it sums up the whole episode. But I I, I don't know if I'll, uh, maybe I'll save that till later on in the podcast because I don't want to I don't want to jump back and forth too much. But there's yeah. a but it mirrors the line uh, that happens later, and then and then also the uh, the episode bookends with that song, right? So it's yeah. it's very it's very important that it kind of starts and ends. Oh well, yeah. Well, well, you mentioned the video games, um, you know, and that's just another thing too. You could you could video game experts would be able to pinpoint the year by the type of arcade games they're playing. You know, I mean, in 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 the original uh, segment, you know, they're playing. Uh, you know, bu- bubble bobble and top speed and stuff like that. But then later, you know, the, it winds up being like Pac-Man and Space Invaders and stuff like that. But um, but one thing that's really interesting, you know, is this sort of like double-edged, you know, kind of dialogue. Like um, when the weird owl guy is trying to convince Yorkie to play this racing game, or no, it's the one the weird owl guy is trying to convince Yorkie to uh, when she's playing bubble bobble. He he says, uh, you know, it's uh, it's really cool. It's got different endings depending on uh, depending if you're on one or two player. Which like completely, right. absolutely ties into the end of the episode and the choices made in the end of the episode, which I thought was a really cool, like sly little reference. Because uh, the because the episode almost does kind of have like two different endings, you know, and then you know it's, you, you kind of think it ends one way, but then it kind of ends another way, and, and it really does tie into that that line that he that he says about yeah. the, or if you're on one or two player or not. Also worth mentioning is when he's trying to convince her to play uh, top speed with him. She walks over to the machine like she's interested in playing and it's sort of like a driving simulation game and she sees this like sports car like speeding out of control and then it spins out and crashes and immediately she has almost like a PTSD and she's like, no, that's okay and walks away, which obviously ties into a major plot detail right. later on in the episode. Yeah, but so that was one where it was like, okay, this is actual foreshadowing that like you're supposed to know that she's yeah, reacting to it. It's not something that you're going to... You're get, it's not going to lead to an aha moment later. You're actually experiencing the fact that this is a tease. So she's navigating through this bar. Uh, she ends up making eye contact with this woman who just like immediately captivates her. Yeah. Who we we later learn is named Kelly. Kelly, who is played by actor Gugu Mbatha-Ra, and she is a British actor. Yes. Uh, who also does a flawless uh, American accent. You know, sometimes I was shocked when I listened yeah, to interviews with her because <laughs> totally sometimes, uh, you know, you, you see a film or something and, uh, you know, and you can kind of tell, like, especially when somebody's being really emotional or they're having an argument or screaming or, whatever, you know, you get little hints of it. I mean, even somebody who's really good at, uh, you know, like Christian Bale, you know, sometimes, you know, like when he's ranting in American Psycho or something, you hear a little a little hint of the Welsh peeking through. But, yeah, I, I was completely surprised when I saw an interview with this actor and she had like this like strong British accent because uh yeah, it's I, I never would have known. She does such a such a flawless American accent in this. So Kelly is I don't remember this character's name, but she's being I guess we've seen her earlier in the in the street. Accosted by Wes. 
Right. We're seeing her being pestered by Wes. He, I think she actually calls him out like, now you're pestering. Like, that's yeah. the official term for and, like, and there's these little, cross that line. There's all these little hints of kind of anachronistic dialogue that are, that are sort of sprinkled through the thing. At first, very subtly. And then as it goes on, they kind of get more and more overt, you know, because I remember watching it. I mean, obviously, when I was watching it, knowing it was Black Mirror, I knew it wasn't going to just be a straight up. 1980s period piece with no twist or I knew that something was coming but I think the very first thing in the entire episode that kind of alerts you to something is when and when Wes is, is sort of bothering her in the street you know and she's saying you know okay like kind of you know leave me alone and and he's like you know keeps bugging her and she says uh, something like am I going to have to red light you or something like that or she's like don't don't make me don't make me have to red light you. And, you know, obviously that could just be like a metaphorical way of saying, you know, like, don't make me write you out of my life or don't make me start Cut ignoring you or whatever. Or, yeah. But then it turns out that, you know, it's a, it's actually a real a real thing that she's alluding to, you know, actually blocking him from being able to, like, interact with her or whatever. But you don't realize that at this point. Is that a thing? Like, it, did we ever find out what red lighting actually is? Or Because her, her way of avoiding people is mm-hmm. just, like, hop. Yeah, to a different yeah. time, right? Era hopping. Like, is um, there is there a a block or a mute option no, in this world? Well, <laughs> I believe so I because it's cause not there Twitter, is but. in other Black Mirror episodes. Um, I mean, not not that not that all the universes of every Black Mirror episode are specifically connected. Some some of them are because there's references to some episodes and other episodes and things like that. So so maybe they are, but but it doesn't specifically explain the red lighting or the pain sliders or anything like that in in the episode but but you know if you if you kind of cross reference it with like the black mirror white christmas episode with john ham and stuff and what happens to him in the end of that episode i believe that you know obviously like if somebody was really bothering you or stalking you or whatever in this world you you could probably just sort of like on facebook almost like block them so they couldn't see you or interact with you or vice versa so i think um if you're in the san juniper system and you have to red light somebody it probably like eliminates them from from being able to interact with you or whatever which which seems like it would cause problems if you're both like walking down the the street at the same time and just like physically bumped into each other but i guess that wouldn't actually happen because you you don't really exist it's not a physical space yeah Yeah. so kelly shows up again trying to avoid wes um and decides to approach yorkie as her as her way of getting out of this situation she sits down with yorkie and uh uh, claims that she's a, a dying friend from back in the day. To yeah, which to, is ironic, you know. She says she's got like five months to live or whatever. Oh man, I didn't place yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of this that like I haven't totally yeah, revisited again because you only watched the one time, right? Because yeah. it's like because when you go back the second time, knowing everything you do after having watched it the first time, all these little sort of foreshadowing double meanings and stuff like that kind of reveal themselves right so then her saying oh you know my friend is dying then that's more like hey i'm doing orientation right now i'm showing her the ropes as opposed to you know really wanting to spend time with someone before they die which is the vibe that you get that's interesting i hadn't gone back to that um so anyway west fucks off and uh and so yorkie and kelly become become fast friends yeah and another thing that was again weird to me watching this the first time is that kelly was being very insistent that wes was bothering her and at this point i didn't know what was going on so i saw it as wes is being a pest he's trying to get with kelly he's being obnoxious he's being pushy but then kelly immediately follows that up with to me on the first glance seeing that like doing the same behavior like she's really pushy towards yorkie she's not picking up on 
you know, the the physical cues that Yorkie has of like, no, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be in this position. Please She's here for a short time, not a long time. Yeah, please don't make me drink. Please don't make me dance. Like, Yorkie's yeah. trying to put up all these guards, and Kelly's just trying to knock him down. And I was like, well, yeah. now you're being the pest in this situation. Yeah. But What uh, a hypocrite, Kelly. Uh, you know, it's interesting, though, because once you find out more about Kelly and, and, and what's going on with her and why she's there and everything, it does make sense that she's... She doesn't really have any time to waste, you know. She's 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 going there uh, as kind of a last hurrah, and she just wants to party her brains out and get her rocks off and stuff like that. And so she's she's bold in terms of her uh, approaching of other people, and and then obviously with Yorkie, you know, she's extremely shy and 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 withdrawn and awkward, and you get the feeling that you know she hasn't really done anything like this before, which she hasn't. In their interaction, there was this another weird thing that I didn't know how to navigate now going back I can it was strange to me to see somebody in a conventionally 80s outfit talking to somebody else and applauding them for seeming (laughs) authentic about wearing cosmetic glasses I didn't know what to do with that at first that Kelly was just oh you know you're so authentic all these other people they're just dressing like what they saw on TV you seem to be dressing for yourself yeah, and so I was like, okay, I'm cool, I'm into that, but like, complete, like, why are you calling fake glasses authentic? Right. But again, it was you know, well, because I I... because uh, Yorkie hadn't really been in this world before. Yeah. She was just dressing in whatever she felt comfortable yeah. in, yeah. whatever she felt good in. Yeah, and because of her like deeply religious upbringing and stuff like that, she she probably had a more subdued kind of aesthetic style. You know, she probably wouldn't want to wear like a really loud or revealing dress or anything like that. You know, and I'm assuming that she probably just wore glasses in real life because she actually did say like I think uh, when Kelly said you know are, are those prescription or are they just you know or, and she said you know that she, I think she said she she wore them when she was young and that it's just kind of like a comfort thing for her so she's she's just kind of appearing the way she would have probably appeared in regular life right you know just slightly updated to a different era so Kelly convinces Yorkie to dance they get up on the dance floor uh, everybody's doing this synchronized dance which seemed like something out of a out of an 80s movie and again you know i felt like it was strange to have kelly being angry that people are acting like what they saw on tv and then she seems to be leading this entire crowd in a group dance yeah she's like the most you know like tv style 80s you know kind of uh overt 80s you know aesthetically yeah i mean she's kind of calling out her own behavior right that she's like okay you know i i acknowledge that i'm I'm doing tourism right now. Like I'm, I'm just yeah. living as much in this moment in this artifi- <laughs> artificial, artificial box. Not. Yeah, it's interesting because you know I actually I'm dating myself here, but you know I actually I actually grew up in the '80s. Uh, for, for well, I was I was young in the '80s, but I I did live through the '80s. So it's interesting because the '80s of this world of like San Junipero isn't exactly like a like a realistic, you know, p- entirely realistic portrayal. Uh, of the 80s uh, it's it's more like a place that's created of people's memories of the 80s it's like sort of like a dream world version of the 80s where you know everything is just like 100% 80s like they've yeah. got a, like a dance club and it's all pastel colors that plays just 80s music and right. there's all the arcade games that are just you know everything it's almost like there should be a giant flashing sign out front that just says like 1987 you know and uh, it, which I think is completely intentional I think I think that as opposed to being like something that's like genuinely 1980s, it's almost like 
a place that is represents people's memories and ideas of what the 1980s were yeah. like sort of like ever, like the greatest hits of yeah. of the 1980s all together yeah and i mean in this case specifically of 1987 yeah um and i mean this is this is really similar to i did uh back to the future 2 recently right, with, right, right. with rob mcdougall and just the idea what's that, the matter mcfly <clears throat> you got no scrote um, the idea in the first Back to the Future they go to the fifties diner. In Back to the Future Part Two they go to the eighties diner, and yeah. it's not right. It's not accurate no. <laughs> of what you know a place in that time would be. But That's it's meant especially to, not the eighties version. Yeah, I mean it's it's a space that is meant to yeah. represent a time. Yeah, and I forget even what it was that I was listening to recently. It might have been the Daily Zeitgeist, the new podcast I started listening mm-hmm. to. But they were talking about how you know when you set something in a year. Not everybody is up to date on the latest fashions and, yeah, yeah, exactly. and culture of that year. Like, I am not a representation of 2017. Sure. Like, I'm wearing a four-year-old sweater. Right. It's like if you if you got in a time machine and went back to 1987, they wouldn't all be driving 1987 model cars and wearing, like, cutting-edge <laughs> exactly. 1987 clothes. It's like, that's the thing that's really interesting with, like, period pieces and stuff. You know, I always feel like, you know, films, you know, like, let's say, you you know, they do a science fiction film and everything is, like, brand new and glass, computer screens and super technology and everything. And it, and it just it doesn't ring true. You know, I always buy into films more like Blade Runner or something where, um you know, a lot of stuff is, like, banged up and rusted and old and there's things from this era and that era and everything's all kind of mixed together. Because if you, if you went back to, like, 1962 and went into somebody's living room, you know, a lot of their furniture wouldn't be from 1961 or 2 or whatever. It would be, you know, it'd be like, oh, this couch is from 56 and this clock is from 58 and this uh, fridge is from like 55 and maybe they have like one or two new thing, like a record player might be new, but uh, but the tea kettle's like 15 years old, you know, and it's all, it's all kind of like a, a potpourri or like a mishmash of different, right. uh, you yeah. know, styles and time periods. So we're in most movies and most series and most anything, when they do that, when they just like slam visual cues about mm-hmm. the year mm-hmm. to you they're doing it as a shortcut but in this it's so overbearing right. and so on the nose that i think it's intentionally supposed to make you feel like this is a bit much yeah. and like already put you in the space that like hold on a second wait, <laughs> like, yeah wait a minute i think i think that's totally intentional i think i think charlie brooker obviously wrote it that way we're actually getting uh, you know up to the point of the first reveal right here uh, where um, the two women, you know, I mean, uh, Kelly's putting so much kind of s- sexual pressure on Yorkie that she kind of like flees the dance floor and, and runs out into the alleyway and it's raining and Kelly follows her out there and they have that little moment where Kelly basically, you know, you know, come, she propositions comes her, yeah. yeah, she propositions her. She said, look, you know, let's cut the bullshit. Like, do you want to come go to bed with me? And Yorkie seems like really conflicted, like she wants to, but she says, oh, I just can't. I've never done anything like this before. She says, that's even more, all the more reason to whatever, but she just, she, she, she gets cold feet. She craps out and they make reference to like you know how they only have two hours left and stuff like that and how that's not enough time right, there's this, this kind deadline of this midnight. yeah and it's got a very like cinderella feel it's got a very like you know you have to be back in the carriage by or you know you have to be back home by midnight because the carriage will turn back into a pumpkin or whatever and so she takes off and you get your first kind of major clue that something's like not quite because she says something about like next week or something or there's some reference to like you know, not being able to come back for another week or something like that. And so 
you know, she, she wanders off and, uh, and then it just sort of cuts to black and you hear some kind of, uh, you know, mysterious sounds that you find out later are probably like a hospital. You hear people like nurses walking down a hallway and announcements being made, like a doctor being paged or something like that. Very, just very subtly, very, yeah, yeah, it's subtly very, in the background. very low. It's almost yeah. like a, I mean, to, the first time I heard, I mean, the second time after, you know, after the second week, it's much more much more obvious mm-hmm. where it's like a almost a modem sound like there's a very digital quality right, to it. right right but yeah there's this this weird sound um I, I do want to call out before we move sure. away from it is that when they're dancing and i know that you've you know you've enjoyed calling out the the lyrics that are like <laughs> right yeah like telegraphing the theme of the moment when yorkie's trying to dance and where she feels like she's yeah. just like this is not my place this right, is not right. a space that i feel comfortable in a, a lyric that comes up is you're a fake yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's something that carries through for a while. That like we don't find out until about like like you said, two thirds, three quarters of the way through, exactly what your deal that you, is. That they actually are fakes, and yeah, um, and I mean, even I mean, even in this place where you should be able to be free to disclose everything about yourself, like she's still like she's holding back. She's totally guarded, and, and so is Kelly. I think they both are. You know, I think I think the interesting thing about San Junipero, and we'll probably get into it more when we actually start talking about what it, exactly it is and, and everything, but um. But I think the interesting thing is 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 that it is this kind of uh, you do have like a degree of anonymity there, where you can slip into this place, uh, and you can just kind of be who you've always wanted to be and kind of behave how you've wanted to behave and just kind of in this kind of no strings attached way, you can have fun and stuff without anybody really getting hurt or anything at least not physically. This is a part at which I I felt like I wasn't getting as much out of this movie or episode or whatever you want to call it as I could be because I was going in with the knowledge that this was a Black Mirror episode right right and I felt that really like dogging at me while we were going through this mm-hmm. whole 80s part of it that I was just like you're well, waiting for the other I know to drop. I know there's a twist I know that there's something weird going yeah. on and so instead of completely investing in what was going on on the screen, I was trying to figure it oh, out. Oh, you're trying to figure Yeah, th- th- there's some funny things I want to say about that, but I'll, I'll wait till we get to the appropriate parts. But there's, there's um, a couple really funny ideas I had as to where it might be going, Well, I mean, I'll which t- were wrong. Yeah, but... I mean, I'll tell you my. I mean, at, at this point where I was like, oh, yeah. you know, like she seems like she's, I mean, even Kelly asks her, like, what are you, Amish? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, she's a robot, and she's right. like learning about bucking for the first <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. Like, uh, I, like I thought that, and because she's, I mean, even in this first instance, she makes reference to this guy who she's going to be marrying and how she doesn't really want to. And I was like, is this like a training ground for sex robots? Like, that's, yeah, and it's that's really the funny that I had the way she talks about the guy too, because because uh, it's like this really awkward dialogue where, where where Kelly's trying to kiss her or something, and, and she says like, no, no, I, I I can't, I have a fiance, and then she kind of pauses and says, he's called Greg, <laughs> and it's sort of it's such a weird way. To talk about like your your fiance or your lover or whatever, just say you know she didn't say like his name's Greg or so she just said he's called Greg as if like she'd never really met him or she was just told you know w- which totally makes sense when you when you find out you know what what her relationship to Greg actually is but but uh, it's just such a, a hilariously it's kind of literally ar- the most she knows about yeah, him yeah yeah it's literally it's just like here's well, an interesting fact about my fiance there's this guy called Greg I've talked to him on the what is it the calm link or something they say yeah. we spoke on the calm link a few times or and. Uh, and so it's 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 literally. Uh, I mean, she she probably you know is about as familiar with Greg as Kelly is at this point. You know what I mean? But but uh, there, there, there's a lot of really f- humorously kind of awkward dialogue in this episode, which at the time you hear it seems kind of like off, but then as it goes al- along, you realize that there's there's a purpose to it. There's a 
there's a point to it but it but it but it, there are a few a few lines where you're kind of like what what like huh he's he is called greg so the the first week is done yeah yeah so you, we have this weird little this little interlude and then it says one week later just smash cut to this title card one week later yeah and it's interesting because the fonts change depending on what era they're in but we'll get to that in a minute we'll get to that later uh the the, the one thing i noticed i i believe if i remember correctly i believe that this second week starts with kelly driving in her car back into San Junipero and just just as an aside uh, she has a dream catcher in her uh hanging from the the rear view mirror of her car which obviously is self-explanatory but i mean um just another little detail you know that, that they're kind of living in this kind of dream world that's that's not everything that it seems i'm glad that you decided to explain the self-explanatory thing cuz i wasn't <laughs> yeah, sure where you were going yeah. with that. right right yeah and there's uh, there's other things too there's another encounter with uh with uh the uh annoying uh uh, at least to her, Wes, uh, where where he's trying to um, coerce her into being with him again, and she's saying, you know, it didn't mean anything. You know, it was fun. It was just fucking. You know what? You know, just, you know, there's lots of other people here and stuff like that. And he says this line where he says, um, she says something about like, you know, you know, it wouldn't be there's so many people here. I mean, it'd be easier for you to like find somebody else. And he says something like, the locals, they're like dead people. And at this point, once again, like it could just be him sort of metaphorically saying that they're boring or whatever. But mm-hmm. but actually. As we find out later, a very large percentage of the the, the denizens of San Junipero actually are dead people. And then uh, Kelly goes into the bar, or into Tucker's. She sits at the bar and uh, is approached by this hilariously uh, '80s out guy um, with a, like a mullet, and he has like a like a Don Johnson Miami Vice jacket. It's really funny. He, he he's sort of done up like uh, like Sonny Crockett at Miami Vice, you know, and he has that kind of. Um, I remember this from my childhood. You know, it was very common to have these sort of like suit jacket, these sports coats with this sort of flecked pattern in them. You know, these sort of little flecks of different colors and stuff like that. And so, you know, and 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 in proper Don Johnson fashion, you'd wear them with like you know like a pastel colored T-shirt or something, and you'd have like a tight kind of jacket with the sleeves, sleeves rolled, rolled up to up, the elbow. Yeah with this flecked pattern in it, you know, or is it like a pair of shoes with no socks on and like white slacks and stuff. So this guy's very like Miami Viced out. Yeah, he's doing it. He saw you the, know. he, you know, he saw the call for 1987. Yeah. He said, fuck it, <laughs> let's do it. And I think it's funny too, because this, this is when they start talking at the bars when they're playing the song, I'm living in a box, I'm living in a cardboard box, you know? And, uh, and it's funny too, because he says, uh, he turns her and says, you know, I never really got this song. Kind of weird. <laughs> And uh, it's just sort of like this bizarre offhand comment. But then I, I read an interview with Charlie Brooker, who himself was talking about how he never really got the song and always seemed kind of weird to him. So I, I suppose that's a little bit of a little bit of Brooker like bleeding into the episode. So uh, Yorkie kind of dances around, not literally, but she uh, she sort of lurks. You know, she knows yeah. that she wants to engage with Kelly again. She's back. She's decided she's to she's decided that she wants to follow through on whatever this yeah. is. And so she kind of she she lingers around. She makes eye contact a couple of times, and then ultimately she ends up confronting Kelly in the bathroom. And she just like Best lays place it all for it. Really, <laughs> she lays it all. Well, I mean, it, she's in the women's bathroom. Like it's this, yeah. the the one place that she can feel safe, I guess, to engage with another woman. The, without the place the... where most important dialogue uh, <laughs> between women takes place. Um, and she, I loved this this exchange oh, where yeah. she where she's just like lays herself bare because it's really disarming yeah she's fearless while being like supremely vulnerable at the same time where she says like i need you to help me with this i don't know how to do yeah. this that part really got to me um where she you know here's somebody i mean obviously you know i keep jumping ahead but i mean this is somebody who's never 
ever been with anyone before, never kissed anyone, never, never, you know, I mean, obviously we'll get to that in a minute, but, but, um, the fact that it's taken her like an entire seven days to psych herself up, to get the courage up to, to approach Kelly again. And she well, I th- says, I think she was I, always planning on coming back, but she's had, yeah, yeah like you said, seven days to psych herself up and like it. figure out how she's like, she's I really want to do this. Yeah. And, and, and it's really disarming to me that, that she goes in there and she just, like you said, she just says, I don't know how to do this. And she says, can, can you just make this easy for me? And then Kelly kind of understands and she just like leans in and kisses her, right? Like, is that, it's just kind of like this unspoken thing. Like, she's just kind of like, you know, I'm game, but, but, but you gotta, you're leading this dance, you know? Yeah. So they end up uh, leaving the bar. They go back to Kelly's amazing beachside property. Yeah. Like, how did she land that place? You know, like. Does that does everybody in San Junipero get like an amazing like beachside? Well, uh, I think it's I th- imagine it's kind of like um, have you watched The Good Place at all? No, are you aware no. of the concept of that? So it's no. it's made by I believe Michael Schur is the uh, the creator of the show. Like the okay. uh, behind he worked on The Office, did Parks and Rec. Right. Rock. Okay. Okay. Right. And the whole idea is that they're in. I mean, they call it the Good Place, but they're in heaven, and only like a very small percentage of all the human beings who have ever right. lived end up in the Good Place. Yeah. Right. And there's so. all these like karmic points that have added up to them being able to be there okay. and so um you get whatever whatever would right. like they, they build right. the ideal house for you in right. the ideal space and uh i mean not to get too far afield from here but it's on netflix so fuck it uh Kristen bell ends up there by accident like okay. there's some kind okay. of mix-up where she ends up oh so she's not supposed to even be yeah there. so she's just this this dirtbag <laughs> who ends up being there right. and she ends up in this very uh this this very like minimalist house because the sure. person whose identity she's accidentally assumed was Is this like, burning like, very right charitable person who like you know at one point she gets served her favorite meal and her favorite meal shows up and it's nothing because the best meal she ever ate was like when she was working with starving people somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> and, right. and so she's, yeah, I mean. Is, is the person who's rightfully supposed to be there accidentally burning in hell somewhere? I, I, I haven't gotten that far, so I, I don't know. Um, but that would be kind of hysterical. Terrible, but hysterical. Um, um, yeah, so they end up in this beachside property. Um, uh, Yorkie reveals that, uh, I, I guess no. Well, she they, doesn't even they, reveal that she hasn't they, been with anybody. They have their first romantic moment. But I want to. I want to. I want to do a couple of shoutouts uh, first. Um, there's the part where they go into the house and she's looking around the house. She's oh, it's it's really nice here, whatever. And, and Kelly says something like, "Yeah, it reminds me of the house I grew up in," or something. Right. Yeah. And Yorkie grabs this framed photo of this, you know, kind of middle-aged woman at a birthday party. I don't know if it says, like, happy 50th or something. And, you know, she's, like, got a birthday cake, and she's laughing or something. And it kind of looks like Kelly, uh, but it's not the same actor. And um, and Yorkie says, uh, is, is this your, this mom? your mom? And Kelly kind of brushes it off, you know. And, and it's really interesting because, um, you know, in a lot of movies and TV shows and stuff like that, uh, the, the glaring example I'm thinking of right now is Prometheus with the Guy Pierce uh, character. Is like, you know, you, you always have this shitty attempt or you know they do it with Winona Ryder and Edward Scissorhands and stuff where like you know when you want to have a character that's depicted as being old later or if you have an old character that's depicted as being young later or whatever they they take the same like young actor and just pancake them in the shittiest you know like most terrible looking makeup you know just awful and uh, it's not convincing at all, and it's really annoying. You know, you see like Winona Ryder at the beginning of Edward Scissorhands. You know, like I always just think, like, why didn't they just get like an elderly actor to to, to do that or whatever? Guy Pierce 
in Prometheus and stuff like that. The only time I think it's ever really worked is um, they had some really convincing old woman makeup on Tilda Swinton in the uh, in the, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Is that oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they have this really hilarious, con- really convincing uh, elderly woman makeup on Tilda Swinton. But that's kind of an anomaly because normally it's terrible. And so I just you know I I think it was really like I, an amazing decision to actually I, I shouldn't say it because we're about to get to the big reveal here so I, I don't want to spoil it uh, prematurely spoil it but but let's just say that like there's two different variations of these characters and and the fact that they got uh different actors to portray uh the various incarnations of the characters I think is is really uh, uh a wise decision because I think it would be really distracting to just see these same people like you just with pancakes right. this horrible <laughs> with four elderly of, makeup yeah. and stuff like that yeah so you get this sorry now the the photograph though right um, are you are you saying that you think that's Kelly older? I believe so. I believe that it is the actor um, who plays the older version oh, okay. of Kelly, but I, I think it's just a younger picture of her. Like I think they probably just asked her, like, "Hey, do you have any like earlier birthday photos of you or whatever?" Well, and she probably just brought it in. What I I, I mean, could be wrong. I well, could totally be wrong. Here's I, I think I want to go back and watch this now because I think like when I first watched, it, I was like, "Okay, yeah, that's her mm-hmm. mom." Because again, we didn't know what was going on. Right. But in retrospect, what I what I think is that that's the daughter. Oh, it could that could very well be, yeah. Because what what if she se- was thirty nine? Yeah. So yeah. what what it seems to me then is that well, I mean, we know that it's true that you right, can you right. can concoct whatever reality you want. Like you can think about it in your clothes change, and all of a sudden you're in a wedding dress. Yeah, that's a really. I wanted to address that point later. I wanted to address that point later in terms of like the sort of actual like the mechanics of mechanics <laughs> yeah. of Sandra Dupere. We'll get to that conversation later because I had some really funny thoughts about that. But it reminds me of of Westworld, uh, you know, the new series uh, Westworld. Um, where it just seemed like the mechanics of it were so bizarre to me. I mean, it was a good show. I mean, it was intelligent and well-made and everything like that. You know, I'm not, like, slagging it. But but uh, I, I just remember w- while watching the show, just being confounded every episode, going, well, wait, wait a minute. Okay, so if that person could do that, okay. And if you have the, but if you're there and you shoot somebody, nothing happens. But if you're not and you have the gun, then you can just blow somebody's face off. And it's like, and then if, but if, if they grab the gun, then suddenly it's, like, I, I remember thinking, like, what, what are the actual logistics of this? Like, what, how do the mechanics of this reality work? Because, you know, I mean, now we're talking about a completely different show, but I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> you know, you have like, you'll have like, say, like, a, like a character in Westworld, you know, you know, will have a gun and you know, and 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 shoot like a Westworld character, and and just like a bullet will like blow a huge hole through the chest and blood squirts over, and then they try to shoot like a like a guest, and like nothing. Ha- I mean, it's almost like something happens, but it doesn't really hurt them. And is it like an actual projectile, or is it just do they have suits that give them shock? But then it's like if if one of the guests like grabs the gun away from them and then pulls that same trigger, it'll like blow their entire face off. You know, to me, I was just, I didn't understand how the mechanics of it worked. Like, are these guns actually loaded with anything? Are they, you know, it was, it was just so confusing to me. And so I feel like San Junipero is a bit tighter and and a bit more purposely vague in terms of that kind of stuff. But there are still a few little, um, you know, a few little moments, you know, that lead, lead to some questions I'd like to ask. But ultimately, I think that you get to construct at least in some way you get to construct your own reality. Like I think that right, that beach house right. is probably an idealized version of the house yeah. that Kelly grew up in. Like literally it's probably that house as she remembers or it. Or maybe just because she's a big fan of the band beach house. Maybe <laughs> she's really into dream pop or whatever. Yeah. So what I'm imagining then is, I mean, Kelly's whole, you know, her creed in visiting this afterlife mm-hmm. is like, I'm just here as a tourist. I know yeah. I have no intent of being here. I'm and here she's for a short time, not a long time. Exactly. She swears up and down that she's here just for fun. Mm, but, she doesn't want to get emotionally attached to anyone but or anything. even when she's there for like hardcore sexy times with anybody who she can take back to her yeah. beach house, 
she still brings her daughter with her. Yeah. So she like she she can't it's like something she, she can't, can't let go of that from, grief. Yeah. And it might not even be like intentional. It might be like a, a subconscious thing too. Like it yeah, might it be, be it might be th- you know like in Inception how uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is constantly being dogged by his like you know psychotic ex-wife that killed herself, whatever. That's all, constantly trying to kill him or kill people that he's with in the in the dream reality. And it's not something he's doing on purpose. It's just because it's like a like an issue for him, like a subconscious yeah. guilt thing that he has. So it could be like that for her, like where she didn't necessarily consciously manifest this picture but because it is sort of her environment in San Junipero it's kind of like her little um, niche or whatever that she exists in it could just sort of be there because it's like part of her and it just kind of almost like manifested itself I think it's interesting that she's that her daughter's there but her husband isn't now that being said if there was like a man in the picture frame then that might be a bit more maybe the husband is the one that took the photo (laughs) yeah I mean it could be I mean it could it could just be like hey it's a movie prop and we need to not Exposed too much of the twist that's coming. There's there's something there's something. I mean, obviously, this leads to this this uh, really sort of beautiful kind of sex scene between the two of them. Uh, but but it's funny to me because because it starts off you know like like really beautifully and intensely like you know where you know they kind of fall into bed together and, and and Kelly's really into it and Yorkie's really nervous and she says like you know I've never I've never done this before and and you know Kelly kind of you know takes over you know and and. Uh, she says, "Yeah, Yorkie says you have to show me." And suddenly, there's like this this really beautiful swell of this like you know gorgeous kind of like pulsating Clint Mansell score, and and you know they, they get really hot and heavy, and Kelly starts like undoing Yorkie's pants and stuff, and and it really reminded me of that really intense love scene in in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive with Naomi Watts and and Laura Herring, uh, where um you know they they've sort of been friends through the movie, and then there's that one moment near the end where they kind of fall in the bed together, and and, and Naomi Watts is like. I've, I, I've never, have you ever done this before? And Laura Harry says, I, I don't know because she's an amnesiac. And uh, and they start having sex and, and uh, Naomi Watts keeps saying, I, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you. And it's like in the, in the Angela Bala Menti music is really uh, super intense. And it kind of it kind of reminded me of that where it's like just this really emotionally raw, really like intense, you know, like love scene between these two women. And the thing that I thought was hilarious um, and I'm not sure if this was supposed to be like funny or if it was just like a like a stylistic thing or whatever. But you know, y- you have strategically, you know, you have Kelly undoing Yorkie's pants. But before it gets too graphic, you know, it, it cuts away. But the cut is one of those classic like Hollywood, you know, Hitchcockian, you know, kind of shots of like you know you have these these two women starting to have sex and and it just smash cuts to like these gushing waves like rolling in you know this yeah. big <laughs> wave rolls into shore with all this foamy frothing water like splashes all over the sand and everything and it really reminded me of that shot at the end of uh, North by Northwest with the train where, going into the uh, yeah with the, yeah. the big train sliding into the, the big tunnel you know and uh, it just reminded me of one of those like old school Hollywood kind of um, double entendre shots yeah. you know uh and right. then you get a bit a bit more exposition after that. Right. So they uh you know after their encounter, uh Yorkie starts to reveal a little bit more about herself saying like not only was that my first time with a woman, that was my first time mm-hmm. ever, that was my first kiss. Yeah. Like it seems like they start getting a, a little bit emotionally connected or they start talking on kind of a deeper level and just like a casual hookup and Kelly kind of divulges her sort of MO which is that like, you know, like she's she's just there to have fun. You know, um, she's like not a permanent resident or whatever. She just um, she just comes there to have a good time and she she doesn't want any drama or any heaviness. And she's just kind of like wants everything to be light and, you know, kind of thing. I I can't remember what the actual end of that scene is, but I I know it's like it's like 1159 or something. And I think right. They just want to hold. We got one minute left. or so. Yeah. They're just like, 
you know, we just hold me right. or and, something. And at and this they, point, and it cuts out while they're just lying together. Like, yeah. And while they're laying in bed, Kelly reveals that she's, uh, she was married to a guy who left is how she says it. Right. Um, so we start to get an idea of, of where Kelly's really coming right, from. Right, that, that, and that's important too, right? Because like, yeah, because she doesn't really explain how or why or whatever. Yeah, but she says the thing about, doesn't she say like, you know, I was married for a really long time and, and then he left and so now, you know, I just want to, you know, I don't I don't want any strings attached. I'm just, you know, I just want to be free and kind of thing. And she's like, yeah, no. but then she says, but I really loved him and she's she's clearly yeah. haunted by it. And, and And it's an interesting thing too because there's that one part where she says, you know, and, and now, you know, I just... You know, like I went through all this heaviness and now I, you know, I just want everything to be light and I just, you know, I just want to have a good time, you know, because you only live once kind of thing. And, and, and as she ends that speech, like a tear, you know, kind of rolls out of her eye and down her cheek, which is, which is interesting to me because that is then mirrored later in another scene with Yorkie, which I won't get into yet, but, but it's, there's sort of a, it's sort of a mirror of, of something that, that happens later. Right. And then it cuts out once again. Right. So then at this point it becomes this. Yorkie comes back to the bar to what's it called again? Uh, Tucker's. She comes back to Tucker's, expecting to find Kelly there. Doesn't find Kelly there. And starts asking around, looking for Kelly. Right. And the bartender says, uh, "Have you tried the quagmire?" Right. <laughs> and doesn't she say like, "What's the quagmire?" or something? And he just kind of gives her this look, like right. or he says something like, "If you if you don't already know what it is, you probably don't want to go there right. or something like that." Right. Uh, so she ends up going to this quagmire, which is this like the greatest goth club <laughs> this, that's ever existed, this, basically. This, right. It's like yeah, this hedonistic. It's amazing. It's amazing. I don't think you're supposed to think it's amazing. I think it's supposed to be like really horrifying and nightmarish. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is the only club I ever want to like party in. <laughs> the, the funny thing is it shows her walking up to the club and it's kind of like on the outskirts of San Junipero. Like it doesn't really show her entire journey, but you see her. She's kind of wandered way out of town off the beaten path. And, and it's just sort of like down this really long sort of country road out in the middle of nowhere. And it looks exactly like the uh, the titty twister from from dusk till dawn, you know, okay, yeah. when they drive when Clooney and all them drive drive up and they're way the hell out in the, the desert or whatever, and down this long pathway, you just see this crazy bar with all this like neon lights and stuff yeah. like that. Sadly, there's no Cheech Marin in this one, but uh, but it's funny because but this is one of the first like really anachronistic things that happens because as she's like walking up into the quagmire, you know, walking up the stairs to kind of get into the club, suddenly they're blasting, I think it's a Pixie song, if I remember correctly, they're like blasting this Pixie song, you know, and there's all these people that are kind of dressed like 90s, kind of cyberpunk gothy, you know, like women in like PVC and like S&M, kind of like Yeah, BDSM it looks like the leather bar from the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, like that type of thing, and they're in this Pixie song, and, and, and anybody who's like paying attention is going to be like, wait a minute, like Pixies in 1987? Like this doesn't make sense, you know, like it's... uh. You know, and then and then you get in there, of course, and it's just this sort of like bacchanal, free for all, you know, hypersexual, polyamorous, like, uh, you know, insane kind of. Um, how would you even describe it? There's people like, okay, first of all, there's that gorgeous, really androgynous woman with like the buzz cut, and with like she's wearing these like black pasties. She's like very buxom, and she she reaches out and touch. I think some other guys like feeling her up or something. And she reaches out and touches uh, Yorkie's face as she walks in and they kind of look at each other for a minute. And I always found that part like really sexy. Uh, it's just kind of like, she's kind of like the, you know, like the, the, the one at the gate that's like beckoning her in or whatever. Right. And you get in there, you just see like this hilarious stuff going on. Like, like there's, like there's this cage fighting, you know, there's these guys like fighting in a cage and one like smashes a beer bottle over the other one's head. And there's just people like making out and like half naked and all this kind of BDSM looking stuff going on. But there's this one just really hilarious thing that only lasts for like a second or two. But there's like, there's like a woman that's like, 
She's got like saran wrap or something, and she's just like holding it over a guy's face, like she's right. just like suffocating this guy with a bunch of cling wrap or something. And you only you only see it just for like a second, but it's so ridiculous. And uh, and I just remember thinking that's my bar, like that's my bar, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So not Yorkie scene. Uh, she ends up stumbling across Wes, Wes, who's looking just like a haggard piece of shit. Yeah, just all moment. sweaty. He looks like he's been pissed on. <laughs> He looks like he's just been like a, like a piss slave to like twenty six women or something, like yeah. So so he's yeah. He hasn't uh, slept in like two weeks. So Wes is uh, you know he kind of gives Yorkie this sympathetic look like oh she got to you too yeah yeah. For, first he's kind of standoffish, then when he sees how like heartbroken she's kind of like oh you too huh, and then and then suggests uh, that she tries a different time. He, say, right. he says something like I've seen her in eighties nineties, saw her in two thousand two once. Right, so that's when we get the uh, the reveal yeah. of font changes. Not not a totally clear reveal, but then we see her jump yeah. to was it eighty? Well, so it's one week later, as as we've been seeing through the whole thing, um, but in a different font this time. It's like it's almost like um, every time they change year, it's a slightly different font. Right. So at this point, she there's a, a more subtle time jump because she's somewhere else in the 80s. I think it's a. I think it's actually 1980. And something there's something really interesting here, and I've never been able to figure out if it's um, intentional or not. I think it is. If it's not, it's just total like amazing serendipity. But I feel like it, it has to be on purpose because, like I said before, Mackenzie Davis, the actor that plays Yorkie, um, is on this show Halt and Catch Fire, and the first season takes place in like. I think 1983 or something like that. And uh, her co-star, Carrie Bichet, who plays the other character, Donna Clark, who's kind of like the wife of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, Steve Wozniak-style uh, computer genius guy, right? She's basically like Mackenzie Davis's co-star. And, sh- and in season one of Halt and Catch Fire, she's constantly wearing this very specific outfit, this early 80s outfit of like these kind of like tight jeans and this kind of like plaid, sort of ye- yellow and kind of powder blue kind of plaid farm girl kind of shirt and stuff right and she and she's like every time i think of her in that show i always picture her wearing this outfit so when when yorkie walks in uh to tucker's in in like maybe it's 83 i don't know it's like it's early 80s um she's wearing this exact same outfit and i don't know if if that's just because that was like a really popular outfit that women wore back in that time period or if it's kind of like a like a easter egg kind of nod to to halt and catch fire because it's kind of ironic that that, that she's kind of dressed like the other character from halt and catch fire i thought that was really cool and then obviously we we've recreated all of the signposts from the very beginning of the episode so we have a we see the movie theater again but with a different poster we hear different music playing out of the car we see a different video game in the arcade so it's yeah this time it's all pac-man and space invaders and stuff like that yeah the weird owl guy is still there playing video games because that's that's just his scene he just hangs out in that in that one bar i wonder is it is it just like is there just one bar I think so. Like, did, because, they, did they invest all of their money on giving everybody their own house? <laughs> well, it and... seems like it seems like um, San Junipero, quote unquote. It seems like this. It's almost like like the holodeck, you know, on Star Trek, whatever, right? And it seems like it's this very convincing world, but also kind of a like a limited space. You do get near the end, sort of a, like a more broad view of the place when they're standing out like by the by the sea or the ocean or whatever, and you can kind of see the whole town with all the lights and everything. So it is. It is big enough but there's probably only one real like downtown strip main intersection like there's probably only one dance club there's probably only one like restaurant or like you know there's probably only one probably just one of everything yeah the way to mix it up is to go to a different time not to go to a different place yeah exactly because because it's just sort of like this 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 it's almost like this one town 
but I don't really know how far it extends beyond the town itself. You know, mm-hmm. it seems like it's just this kind of like weird little enclosed little seaside yeah. kind of yeah. place. Although, I mean, it does seem like everybody has their own private residential space. Well, I guess or, although maybe to, everybody uh, lives in the beach house. I don't know. And yeah, just, they all have their the same beach house, but it's just in a different uh, little pocket of the of the programming. Um, I think like they said, eighty percent of the people are permanent residents, right? So they, they would all have to actually have a, a physical home. But people that are just sort of dropping in on a weekly basis, like Kelly and Yorkie, don't actually technically have to live anywhere because they're just sort of um, coming and going. You know, That's actually an interesting point. Like, Ke- Kelly's just sort of a visitor, but she has her own residence, whereas Yorkie is a visitor, but she doesn't have anywhere. Well, she does. She has that place that she gets dressed in in the first place. Right, right. She's so got at she least does have like a little apartment or something room. like that, yeah, like an antechamber. Right. Okay. So uh, she's looking for Kelly. She doesn't find her in the 80s. She looks in the 90s. She looks in. Yeah. Two- with, a, with a, like a 30 second Alanis Morissette video. Like, yeah. And like a screen, a scream movie poster, I think. It's, yes. it's every every era is like now playing. And first it's the Lost Boys and then it's like Scream and then they get to 2002 and it's like uh, the, the Born, Born Identity. Identity. Yeah. Which could be like another tip off, right? Uh, well, I mean, at that point. <laughs> at, really at that point, it's, it's like the 118th tip off. That's happened up to this point. Yeah, and I mean, um, even Scream is—I mean, it's about artifice and you know, yeah, cr- you know, creating the reality that you see in movies. And totally, oh, is it in two thousand two where? Yeah, she Kelly... finds she finds Kelly in two thousand two, or Kelly with... finds her in two thousand. No, 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 Yorkie, no they, they do Kelly find each other at, at, at. I don't know if it's actually Tucker's this time. It's it's like a, um, she's Kelly is with the Weird Al guy. And they're playing one of those stupid, like jumping up and down. On, oh, dance, on, dance revolution! Yeah, yeah, like third mix or whatever. You know, yeah, they're 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 doing one of those things. Um, and so Yorkie, you know, I mean, Kelly kind of turns and sees Yorkie standing there, and Yorkie's like, "Hey!" And Kelly does not seem happy about this. It's right. like she didn't want to be found. She's pissed off, and she goes into the bathroom, which so is we, their place. Yeah, we have our our second bathroom tete a tete between these two characters, right? Um, yeah, so they they get into it, and Kelly, you know, insists that like you know, fuck off, like I, yeah. you're doing exactly what I didn't want you to do. I don't want yeah. you to get involved. You're like, being a Wes. You are not my problem. Mm-hmm. Please go mm-hmm. away. Like stop burdening my experience with yeah. your emotions. Which in a way is valid because she kind of laid down that groundwork initially. But then you have Yorkie from this completely other perspective of saying, you don't understand what this means to me. Like you don't understand who I am and, and what right. I've been through and, and, and how important this was to me. And you can't just, you know, take me on this journey and then just ditch, you know, cause like, which I mean, I, it did serve the purpose of me feeling yeah. like rah, rah Yorkie, like good yeah. for you for standing yeah. up for yourself and also being sympathetic to Kelly. But it also, made both, me kinda, yeah. it kind of bummed me out about Wes. Cause like, we don't know his story. Either. Yeah. Like, like Wes could be like a totally <laughs> decent guy. Wes could have been like, you know, yeah. I don't know. Who knows? You know. What I, I mean, mean, he he was introduced to us as this like relentless pervert, but yeah. like we don't know his backstory. Well, it after could be that... after everything you see Kelly put Yorkie through, you almost cr- get like like a degree of sympathy for Wes. It's kind of like I said before about Fight Club. It's like you know the first time you see it, you just think the the Marla the Marla character is just this nagging sort of harpy, and then the second time you watch it, you you actually are like, oh man, like I I have a lot of sympathy for her. She's really gone through the ringer. Yeah, you know dealing with this person and so so yeah like so Wes Wes may not actually be the the uh, date rapist type character that he's portrayed as in the first kind of half of the episode so um, Yorkie ends up storming off 
you know, tries to collect her thoughts, ends up going and sitting on a rooftop. Right, and she has a really good burn before she leaves, too. She says, uh, you know, when Kelly's kind of like, what are you doing here? Leave me alone. She says, how the hell is this your era? And it's such a good burn because it's like the 2000s, and that is like a particularly shitty era. Like, if you think about it, you know, like the 60s totally had its, I mean, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s had its own thing. The 80s had its crazy thing. The 90s had all the grunge and, you know, the plaid shirts. Or anything. And then, like, what does the 2000s have? It's like new metal. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It's like Evanescence or something. Something. It's like it's like what like what what is their big claim to fame? You know, like uh, Matt Damon action vehicles and uh, yeah, dual rectified amplifiers and stuff. Um, which is funny. There's also also I want to I want to just briefly mention um, that th- there's this kind of really iconic shot in the sequence when Yorkie kind of storms out on Kelly. Uh, you know, and you can see that it kind of gets to Kelly. You know, like as she's trying to have this kind of she's put up this brick wall. You know, but but you can see that it kind of gets to her and she gets frustrated. I don't know if she's frustrated with herself or with Yorkie or the whole thing or whatever, but she punches the mirror and breaks it. And it's kind of an iconic shot for the series because because uh, the, the the mirror cracking, like the broken mirror, is like the, the main title credits to yeah. Black Mirror itself. Every episode starts with the mirror breaking. And so when she, she punches the mirror. And also, yet another reveal, we have our 214th reveal. <laughs> um, she, she breaks the mirror, and you can see it all splintered, and it pans down to like her hand or whatever. And then when it pans back up, she's looking at herself through this clear perfect mirror so that's like another another uh tip off to the fact that you know they're not in a like a real how's this for a visual metaphor though i mean like every episode of black mirror it's about the cracks in the mirror and you know like mm. the everything falling apart but this is the only episode of black mirror where, where the mirror f- fixes yeah, itself yeah right the mirror no longer cracked from side to side uh. charlie brooker said uh, like i Someone asked him once, like, why is the show called Black Mirror? And he had this really cool answer. It was like a paragraph. I think it was like a like a it was like a tagline or something for the series or whatever that he'd written. And I can't replicate it right now uh, with that degree of verbosity because it was really cool. But it was basically about how so many of us now like live our lives through these technological devices like iPads, iPhones, computer screens, laptops, and stuff like that, right? And you know, th- there's always that moment where like you, you turn it off and for a, a brief second, you know the screen itself becomes like this black mirror where you can see yourself reflected in it. And, and it's like the show itself is kind of a reflection of, you know, the sort of the dangers of, of, of this technology and, and how it's affecting us and the sort of, sort of cautionary tales and stuff like that. So it's almost like the, the show black mirror is a reflection of our own kind of behavior and influence under this technology and the technology itself in a, in a literal way, actually reflects us back at ourselves in this dark kind of way um it sounds kind of corny when i describe it that way but he actually uh, had written it he'd written it into a a verbose little little uh missive or whatever little paragraph i imagine the paraphrase does it credit hopefully um so kelly sees yorkie sitting up on the roof kind of goes oh geez now i gotta deal with this yeah, she's sitting on top of the roof of this high building with her legs like hanging off or whatever. And the first thing Kelly says when she climbs up is, uh, please tell me you've got your pain slider set to zero, which is yet, yet another yeah. tip off. We, we, it's almost like, should we even mention these things anymore? Because there's, <laughs> there's so many of them. But but it is it is funny, though, like the idea that, you know, I mean, like, 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 like who puts their pain slider to 10, right? Like, I mean, is it just like somebody that's just hanging at the I quagmire I imagine all the time? a lot of people at the quagmire have their yeah, pain yeah, receptor set to 10. All they want to do is just be beaten on for all eternity. <laughs> Um, well, they've probably been there. Like, we have no idea how long this place has been around, right? Like, the quagmire yeah, might be where, like, everybody ends up once they're done with all the... Oh, yeah. The f- well, there's a dark side to it. Yeah, there's a dark side to it because, you know, I mean, clearly it's designed to be this kind of utopia, you know, and we're, get, we're getting to this very soon. But, like, you know, pe- people, 
you know, that obviously can't enjoy themselves in, in their actual lives or, or that have had tragedies or whatever, you know, can actually flourish in this environment. But, but you got to think like, you know, after a certain period of time or, 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 you know, like the artifice would eventually maybe become really difficult to deal with the fact that nothing, nothing actually is real and, the, and there aren't really any stakes there. And, and, uh, you know, nothing really kind of means anything. I, I, I mean, in, in an emotional sense, yes, but I mean, you know, I mean, like a guy like Wes, you know, like you're there for an indefinite period of time. You completely fall in love with somebody who doesn't want you, <laughs> you know, and then and then what do you do? You're just kind of stuck there. And so, yeah, eventually so you eventually just let it, some random cling wrap you in the face. Yeah, yeah. I just like, just get a cage fighting with uh, people smashing <laughs> bottles on your head. But uh, yeah, eventually there is that kind of ominous you know, sort of uh, lingering idea that may- maybe like eventually does everybody just wind up at the quagmire? I don't know. I mean, Kelly drops the the tidbit that you can always stop. Right. Like it's not like this is. Yeah, a, you could pull yourself. Out this isn't the hell. Time. Like you have this isn't like the you know the 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 yeah. classic idea of the vampire yeah. who just like can't wait for yeah. the agony to yeah, end. Exactly. Like these people do have the option to pull the plug. So I mean, Kelly seems to think that Yorkie's getting ready to getting ready to jump. Right. Which is a little bit arrogant. I think she's right. like, I know you're upset, yeah, but I mean, yeah. like, you don't want to necessarily assume that your actions are going to cause someone to commit suicide. Right. Um, she just needed a calm place to reflect and think about everything that's been going on. Yeah. And I mean, like, she's she's contemplating her own existence. She's contemplating, mm-hmm. like, what's coming from her future. She's looking at this place objectively. She's yeah. sitting on top of the roof, like, surveying the place that is going to be her future world. Yeah. Um, and and so that's when they, they share their... Well, I think you know more of their guards get dropped, and they start talking about who they actually are in like outside. of Well, Saint that's Juniper. when they get back to Kelly's place. I think. I think the thing that's established on the rooftop is basically like you're not entirely sure exactly how much of a shit Kelly gives about Yorkie. Um, you know, because you know when she's just avoiding her and just being bitchy in the bathroom and stuff like that. You know, like you're you're not exactly sure how much she's invested in Yorkie. But on the rooftop, she basically kind of breaks down. And she says, you know, look, like I, I kind of made myself a promise when I came here that I wasn't going to get attached to anyone. I wasn't going to let anyone in. I wasn't going to be affected by anything or whatever. And she's like, and I didn't, you know, uh, account on meeting you or, you know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't conceive of meeting someone like you. And she's like, you know, you, you got to me and it freaked me out. And so I've been like, you know, hiding from it. I've been like running yeah. away. Did and, you believe her in that moment? Um, I just I, I can't it's, it's, actually remember what my actual feelings were the first time I saw the thing. I, I I did. I'll get I'll get into this later because I I did at one very distinctive point of the episode suddenly start thinking that Kelly might actually be like totally sadistic and just be like fucking with Yorkie like on purpose just to <laughs> completely because she's evil. But I'll get to that when we actually get to that part. But I think I think at this moment I think I actually did believe that because if she really honestly didn't give a shit she probably wouldn't have climbed up onto the roof of the building yeah. and, and, and spent so much time trying to like convince Yorkie to set her pain sliders to zero. Uh, I think I think I did believe it was genuine because it, it immediately is followed by them going to uh, Kelly's house again, the beach house again. And is this the part where there's that moment where Kelly's kind of like driving around like crazy, like not really paying attention, accelerating down the road. And then this car kind of comes out of nowhere and she has to veer off, you know, into the, uh, into the sand or whatever. and almost like gets in an accident and, and Kelly just thinks it's funny, but the, the look on Yorkie's face, like really horrified, you know, kind of like at the beginning when, when, she, when she sees the accident in the uh, video game, cause it's like to her, you know, it's like she has like actual PTSD over like a genuine trauma. Whereas Kelly's right. just kind of like, Oh, pain sliders at zero. It doesn't matter if we do get in an accident. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, which is interesting. But so they go back to the beach house again 
and then uh, they, they they get it on again, don't they? <laughs> I think like, so. I, I think they get it on again. Probably another uh, amazing Clint Mansell musical cue. But 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 the crux of it is that they wind up sitting out in front. Oh, they're sitting on the deck, uh, you know, outside the house, kind of watching the waves roll in, kind of um, you know. And there's this interesting thing where where Kelly's smoking a cigarette, and she's and she comments that it doesn't even taste like anything. Which which gets gets back into the sort of like Westworld conundrums of of the mechanics of the world because uh, in the beginning they go and get a drink together at the bar and you know they get these rum and cokes or something and I, and I thought maybe one of them made a comment like uh, oh it's good or something or it's strong or so I I don't know maybe I'm completely making this up but I, I thought that they might have acknowledged in some way that the drink was good and then later Kelly's talking about how the cigarette has no taste and so like I, I was confused because you know. I mean, I feel like this is either going to be a world where things like alcohol and cigarettes and things like that actually like do have scents and tastes and things like that, or they just don't at all. But it seemed odd to me that you'd be able to taste the alcoholic drink but not taste the cigarette. Maybe just because cigarettes are disgusting. <laughs> Maybe you can only taste good things or smell good things. Maybe if somebody farts in San Junipero, there's just like no odor whatsoever. Well, it could be that, I mean, like some of the realities of this world might be sanitized. Like Right. Uh, Yorkie has probably never had an alcoholic drink in her life. Like if to, yeah, if, if you not. if you drank your first rum and coke, right? I don't care what the mix is, you're gonna think it's disgusting. <laughs> you're gonna be like, what? What the hell is this? Yeah. Right. And I mean, uh, it's it's Kelly who checks in with Yorkie and says, "How is it?" And she's like, "No, no, 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 no. It's good. It's, it's good. right." She, but like, maybe she doesn't even know. Yeah. Like, so it could be that like maybe cigarettes literally do have no taste. Yeah, it's like um, in, the, in the Matrix, isn't there? Doesn't somebody make a comment in the Matrix about um? About, oh, are you talking uh, about when Cypher goes back in? Something about the chicken. No, it's not the steak thing. It's it's the thing about like somebody's they're having they're eating that gruel or something. They say it's like chicken or something. They said, you know, it's been so long since like actual chickens existed that we don't it's we don't know if this is actually what chicken tastes right. like. It might actually taste like fish or something. It's just like somebody's memory of what yeah. chicken might have tasted like or whatever, right? So Right. You know. So for um, Yorkie it's like a, it, the drink could probably taste like anything. It could be like, you know, yeah. tur- turpentine or something like that. And she'd be like, Oh yeah, it's good. So yes. As I have mistakenly tried to allude to right, twice right. This now. is the moment here. This so is this the is the moment where they kind of make this pact that, okay, now yeah. we're let's find out who we are outside of San Junipero. Yeah. And Yorkie is, think, Yorkie's really resistant. She says, no, right. I, I don't want you to see me. You know, she's yeah. got this shame. She's got this embarrassment. She's got yeah. this concern that, like, when you see me how I really am, you will not love me anymore. It's also the first time that they've like legitimately acknowledged that like there's this other place that they actually exist in and that San Junipero is just kind of like a, you know, like this sort of alternate kind of, I mean, they've alluded to it before, but this is the first time they're actually like, you know, I actually exist the somewhere shoe has else dropped, yeah, at this point. in reality. Well, not the last shoe. Right. Anyway. Not quite. <laughs> but but Ke- Kelly really wants to come and see Yorkie for real and Yorkie doesn't want that at all yeah and uh, i mean i i asked you earlier whether or not you believed kelly and i mean by the story mm-hmm. i believed kelly it was just in in that yeah. moment because i was seeing this pattern of behavior from kelly that she, you know with what had gone on with wes and i don't want to come yeah. across like a huge wes apologist or anything because right, like, right. that's a not wes apologist i hope that becomes a meme. point of this movie um yeah i mean there's those justice for yeah. barb means like where's the justice, justice for, for wes? wes yeah he wasn't actually a bad guy um, this is funny because this is one of the moments. There's these two moments where I actually had these kind of weird, you know, kind of thoughts about where maybe this was going. And and this was the first one when, when basically, you know, uh, Kelly Yorkie says, "Oh, we're probably so far apart, or whatever. It's probably not possible." And Kelly says, "I'm in uh, 
or what one of them says they're in uh like nevada or something like that right yeah like yorkie says i'm uh, you know i'm in like nevada or whatever and, you know it's probably like way you're probably like all the way across the world or something and kelly says that's that's not far at all i'm in like uh what does she say she's in like uh california the, they're close to each other. yeah they're anyway. close by anyway um and uh they're very close and um uh, but she says, like, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, you just wouldn't get me like I, you wouldn't want to spend time with me. I, I don't want I don't want you to actually see me because I think if you did, like you wouldn't like me anymore or whatever. So immediately. Right. Knowing that this is Black Mirror. Right. Like, like knowing that this is Black Mirror and that the bulk of the Black Mirror episodes that preceded it have these really kind of sadistic, dark, comedically sort of horrible twists, you know, uh, you know, in the end, where where it's just like really awful, and you know, and the and the protagonist just get like stung really horribly and stuff, and uh, I I immediately just pictured that one or both of them were going to be just like this slovenly, fat, bald, middle-aged, like pervert and a wife beater jerking off to like underage porn or something. You know, I thought like, you know, it'd be like Kelly to go, go to visit Yorkie thinking she was going to meet this demure, shy, sad, like lesbian. And instead it would just be this like, you know, like gross neck, disgusting pedophile or whatever, you know, like stained wife beater that just got out of like a 10 year stint in prison for exposing himself to a minor. But, um, as it turns out, I was pleasantly, <laughs> I, real I was pleasantly surprised uh, that yeah, it actually because, didn't turn out. Like yeah, because I mean, at this point, we still don't know what the rules are, like why no. you're allowed to go. You know what San Junipero exists for? Yeah, like who's this so, for? How did this come about? What era is it really? Like, what? Why do people get to go there? Yeah. So I don't. You know, this is a, like I, I had the same thought too the same concern that like oh shit like charlie brooker don't do this to me like yeah, don't, yeah. don't take this story away from me because <laughs> it could have got so dark right? but then I, mean, I also knew that it had a happy ending so i was like right. so is she gonna fall in love with like the yeah the, the, the convicted pedophile <laughs> <laughs> uh oh man um uh, but no it's so i mean do you think that it's to the show's like do, for this episode specifically uh, do you think that it's to its detriment that you know, you're like if you've watched Black Mirror all mm-hmm. along, like you know that there's not necessarily a formula, but you right. know there's something coming. Well, so do you think that like you're supposed to go in and be like, oh, I, I know this is going to be dark, and then you're kind of let off the hook from that, or do you think that you right. spend too much time worrying about well, it that you don't Charlie really go Brooker, on the ride? Charlie Brooker actually said somebody actually asked him about this in the Q and A at TIFF, and I should probably save the quote till till the end, till we get to the end. But um, somebody actually asked him why the sort of format of this episode was different, you know. And he had a really good answer, but I think I think I'll save it. I mean, we're so close to getting to the actual end. I think I'll just save that, maybe to end with. But um, I mean, you said you, you knew that this one had a happy ending. I didn't because I, you know, I'd seen the first two seasons of Black Mirror and the Christmas special. The Christmas special probably having the most horrifying kind of nightmare ending of all of them. And so coming into these, I had no idea what to expect. And um. And they both kind of end on a slightly more hopeful note. I mean, technically, when you're talking about Nosedive, which is the one that was paired with at TIFF, Nosedive, in terms of what actually happens to the character and, and, and like, the actual technical plot, it's not happy. Like, it doesn't have a happy ending. Like, you know, she winds up in jail, basically, right? But she, she loses everything and winds up in jail. But she she finally, you know, kind of decides to stop giving a shit, like, what other people think and trying to fit into to this, like, totally you know, bullshit society that she's living in. She decides to just start 
Like she reclaims herself and starts telling like it is. So it ends in this hilarious way with her telling the guy that's across from her in the prison cell, like, you know, fuck you and stuff. You know. So so in a way, even though technically what happens to her isn't happy, it kind of has a happy ending in the sense that she kind of like reclaims her own kind of identity and, 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 and opinions and personality and stuff. And then also and then San Junipero also has a has a sort of a, a, a more hopeful ending. I don't know if I want to call it a happy ending because there's so many little loopholes. You could say like, what about this? Or what if, what about that? Or is this really technically happy? Right. It's not well, even, tra- I mean, it, I don't know if you take this kind of thing with a grain of salt because I mean, like a piece of work exists as it is. Right. But Charlie Brooker has said like, no, like this is a happy ending. Like how I envision right. this story continuing is right. them just like hopping through time, going on adventures and being together forever. Well, okay. I'm gonna, I'll just, I'll just say the Charlie Brooker thing now. Cause I don't, I mean, I mean, I, now that we've revealed that this episode does kind of have a happy ending. Um, like I'll just say like, you know, cause, cause like I said, most, most black mirror episodes up to this point had, had pretty, distressing kind of you know like disturbing endings you know where characters were left in like horrible scenarios yeah, you so, don't want so, the future most yeah of you the just time. kind of expect black mirror to kind of end with a big like fuck you you know and so you're kind of like getting yourself psyched up for it and and, and somebody actually asked charlie brooker after san junipero ended at tiff they said you know hey like how come this one has a happy ending or whatever you know what i mean like every other black mirror episode ends shitty you know like why like why does this one end? Ha- like why did you do that you know and Charlie Did they Brooker, sound that shitty when they asked the well, question? You know, like they were like, anyone who ever asks uh, like a question at a Q&A, it's all, it's all the really smart people that have the really intellectual, uh, stimulating, you know, kind of uh, the questions you really want to hear the answers to, like never ask the questions, you know, because they're always right. like too, you know, shy about or they, you know, too hipstery to, you know, to actually engage or something, right? But so it's always the people are like, why is there so much nudity in this film? Or like, what, you know, what, you know, like what's with all the flashbacks or whatever, you know what I mean? And so... uh I can only imagine, like, the, the original Q&A at Pulp Fiction, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, what, like Travolta died in one, but he's back. Well, I don't get it, you know? But, like, <laughs> but like basically, somebody said to Charlie Brooker, like, you know, like, why, why it, kind of is this the only Black Mirror episode that has a happy ending? And he said, you know, they were looking at it all wrong, you know? He said the goal of Black Mirror of these episodes, right, he said, is not to bum you out. He says to make you think. You know, he said it's, you know, he said, uh, you know, these 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 uh, these scenarios are kind of constructed to sort of make you think about something often involving technology or uh, the way that a world is going, you know, politically or technologically or whatever. Uh, you know, and, and there's sort of you know cautionary tales or, you know, possible like little sort of horror stories. about what if or if we're not too careful with this or that, you know, this could happen. Or but but he said that. Like it's not it's not supposed to be this kind of like horror show where it's just all about all these people that have bad things happen to me. He said, you know, the the episodes are designed to kind of open your mind up to certain concepts or ideas or make you think, you know, just to make you examine a scenario or whatever. He said they don't always have to be negative or bum you out. He said the goal is to just kind of make you think about things or consider an idea or a scenario or whatever, right? And so this one happens to have a more uplifting or hopeful ending and some of the other ones have just absolutely soul crushingly dark endings but you know but the 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 idea behind the show is to sort of just get get it start a dialogue to get people yeah. kind of thinking about the stuff and talking about the stuff yeah. regardless of whether or not this the specific episode yeah. ends in a in a happy or sad way i think i kind of call bullshit on that answer though because I'm just looking at his batting average, and he's like, and he's just such a nine, sadist. Nine out of ten is <laughs> just, just like, just hey, remember Hope? No, you don't. Yeah, I know that we're doing this a little bit out of order, but I mean, since we're well, we're, we're so close to the end. Since we're, we're on the topic of kind of the construction of this movie and uh, and how Charlie right. Brooker 
made it. I guess originally when he wrote it, he stopped pretty much at this point where where they meet each other in real life, and right. he's like, "No, he fuck it! Like, I just I just want to keep going. I want to see where this goes." Right. And then there was an interview with I think it was the the Daily Beast, where people were asking about you know the things the things that are different. Like, why is this more optimistic? Why yeah. did you make this the way you are? And I guess some people were were mad that this was like a, a like a very American episode, even yeah, though it was written yeah. by a British man. It's set in California, even though I think it was. I think it's filmed, filmed in, in Spain Africa, or something. Or, is it Africa? Because because the whole third season, everyone says like, oh, the third season of Black Mirror is so American. It doesn't feel like the original stuff. And I, and I admit that it does have a totally different kind of tone and feel uh, than the previous seasons. But um, despite the fact that they use some American actors, you know, and stuff in the third season, like I, it's I, yeah, like I I thought that it was filmed in Spain. Maybe it's just San Junipero that's filmed in Spain. Maybe they were filmed in different areas. Um, but yeah, but there, I don't even think it was filmed in America, but, but yeah, it was an American production and yeah. there are some American actors in it, Right. but it's still, m- most of it's still written by Charlie Brooker. So it doesn't matter if it's filmed on, on like Mars, you know what I mean? Like it, as long as Charlie Brooker is still writing the episodes, you know, it's, it's still Black Mirror. Yeah. So he kind of summed all this up in this interview with the Daily Beast where he said, and I'm quoting at this point, uh, I'd read people saying, oh no. It's going to get all American. So I said, fuck it. I'm going to set it in California. Fuck you. Yeah. I'll choose protagonists that wouldn't necessarily leap into my head. And I'll explore a hopeful use of technology to shut people up who think it's written by the Unabomber. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the so. Big, and thus the big middle finger from Charlie Brooker to, to the haters. I like that his middle finger is to give you like a semi happy ending. Yeah, to, to actually that's how we, that's, make a profoundly moving, heartbreaking work like, about like love and loss. Yeah. It's like <laughs> Eminem drawing the line in the sand at the end of yeah. his cipher, like, fuck those. Yeah. Yeah. fans this is this is charlie brooker's version yeah so we're in the real world now right um, it cuts to we should go back and say this is this is after they decide to uh you know after yorkie kind of reluctantly agrees to meet in real life it sort of cuts to the real world for the first time ever in the episode the real world and this is very picturesque assisted living facility that looks like it's kind of out, out in the country somewhere and like you know mm-hmm. whatever Southern California or whatever. Is it, what is it? Santa Rosa, California or something? Is that what she said? And we meet the real life Kelly who is what? Like about like a 70 year old woman or something like that? Like a 70 yeah. something year old. She's like an elderly woman. Um, and, and like I said before, major props to the casting director or, or Charlie Brooker or whoever it was who decided to use an actual older actor uh, to play the, the, the older version of Kelly instead of just like, you know, doing a bunch of horrible prosthetics or whatever on uh, on the the other actor. Yeah, so we, so, and, and she does, they, they do actually look similar. Like, they, like this, this does look like this could be the older version of, of the Kelly that we've seen before. So it was a good casting choice. And, um, and so she is at an assisted living center. Um, oh, we completely, we totally, completely forgot that in the, uh, the the um the scene where they're sitting on the porch together, Kelly tells Yorkie that she's dying right. of cancer, like right. like like super rapidly that she's only got like uh you know like a few weeks to live or something, or no, so a few months. What is it? She's got like well, they told her three a, months a, to live, a few months, a lot of months ago. Yeah. yeah, like they told her six months ago that she had three months to live or whatever, and so she's she's sorry, th- I can't believe we forgot such a major plot detail. Uh, yeah, Kelly. Kelly reveals to Yorkie that she's she's literally dying, and that she could go at any time, and that um, she's already like three months past the time she'd been given, and that the, that's why she'd been going to San Junipero because she just wanted to 
spend the, the the last of her days just like having a bunch of casual fun and meeting a bunch of people and just you know reliving her youth and stuff like that before she goes um and she has chosen not to uh you know kind of be jacked into san junipero you know you i think they discussed that that nowadays people don't really have to actually die for good anymore because they can just sort of be patched permanently into the San Junipero system and just live on there. And she says that she's not going to do that, that she's chosen not to do that, you know, which is, it seems confusing to Yorkie who really loves San Junipero for reasons that we're about to discover. <laughs> now that we've gotten that out of the way. Yeah. We, 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 we are with Kelly at the assisted living facility and her, and she's very frail and, and um, needs needs help, you know, kind of getting around and stuff like that. And she has like a care worker who uh, helps her out to like a, a, a cab or some kind of transit service or whatever. And so they go to a hospital to which they enter and ask to go see Yorkie, uh, like an elder, also an elderly woman um, in a coma. Well, I don't think she's in a coma. She's paralyzed. Well, yeah, she's she's completely paralyzed and can't speak or anything like that. And um, she's just com- totally uh, like physically vacant. Like she can't she can't move or speak right. or anything like that. She's just kind of lying there, sort of trapped, completely trapped within her own like physiology. And so Kelly's taken in there and sees her for real. And it's like a really heartbreaking shot, you know, because you can hear like the life support machine and they, they go into this very white, you know, kind of angelic room. And you see this very, very beautiful elderly woman lying in a, uh, like a hospital bed with uh, like I think she has like a tracheotomy thing that's like breathing for her and stuff like that. And and she's elderly, but looks very, very beautiful and, and very kind of angelic and stuff like that. And and Kelly walks up and, and very uh you know, tenderly like takes her hand and kisses her on the forehead and, and says, hello, stupid, which is funny to me because isn't that the name of an Alice Cooper album? <laughs> like a, like a 1990s Alice Cooper album, I think. Oh, it hello, might be, but that, hello, stupid. But that's also like the, the, the affectation they've given to each other after, because when they're first sitting yeah. on the dumpster after their first meeting, yeah. Yorkie tells Kelly that she's being stupid. <laughs> So that's that's her giving it back. and Entirely ridiculous, yeah. So yeah, so they, they have this moment where... um you know, Kelly kind of talks to her and, you know, r- runs her fingers through her hair and stuff like that and everything. Right. And then um, and then her time is up and she's leaving and is stopped by Greg. Do you want to do you want to field this part? Right. So uh, Greg, we find out, is an intern or an orderly of some kind who mm-hmm. works in the same facility where Yorkie is living. Mm-hmm. And they sit down and they have a nice little bout of exposition yeah. where we find we this is pretty much like the end of the shoes dropping. Yeah, yeah. Where we find out why Yorkie's in this situation that and she's in. And it's really in. heartbreaking. And it turns out that um, Yorkie, as a young woman, um, came out to her family. Extremely um, religious family. Her extremely religious family uh, came out as a lesbian. Did not go over well. To her family. She, yeah, it didn't go over well. She ended up leaving in a very emotional state and... Uh, crashed the car that she was driving. Yeah, which um, explains all of all of her reactions to all the previous car crash type imagery right. in the episode. Exactly explains why she's triggered by all the car stuff that's going mm-hmm. on. Um, and it, it said she was only like twenty or twenty one or something, wasn't it? Like she she she'd never been with anyone. She had extremely religious parents, you know. Right. And um, 
who were just absolutely not cool with with her being queer and um she was only like 20 or 21 and and left in a huff and i don't did it ever say if she if she purposely crashed the car or if she accidentally crashed the car like was she trying to kill herself because she i didn't get the impression that like, I, I, you know, I might be just forgetting a detail but i think it was yeah. just more like just like it, it was this this tragedy that happened right after right. this other tragedy just compounding yeah it's just the, too much and she's the just horror took of her life um so she yeah. ended up going from coming out and having that experience mm-hmm. to being in a state of total paralysis and then being completely dependent on these people who who refused to let her pass over into San Junipero. Right, which I don't think at that point San Junipero was an option. Like I get the feeling that San Junipero is a right. fairly Yeah, no, she's innovation. she's been lying in that hospital for like, you know, 50 years or something like that, you know, um 40 or 50 years probably. Yeah, and and the sad thing about about her story though is that you know like she, she she was paralyzed and put into the state before she'd ever been able to be with anyone or kiss anyone or make love to anyone or share like a like a a personal like sexual connection or romantic connection with anyone. So she basically, I mean, this explains why she's so uh, awkward at the beginning when she's in the dance club and like you know Kelly's trying to da- dance drag her onto the dance floor and it's like she's never even danced before Kelly's trying to seduce her and it's like she's completely panicking because it's like she's never even kissed anybody before right I mean it seems it seems kind of weird and awkward that this very beautiful young woman uh, that you see at the beginning of the episode would be so uptight about just having a drink or dancing or whatever but like one, once you realize this backstory it becomes really heartbreaking that she's she literally has been robbed of her entire life basically and she's never had any experience that any like regular healthy person would have been able to have like falling in love or, or, or having sex or being in a relationship or anything. Yeah. I mean, she has been as far as I think the math of it goes, she's been in this vegetative state for like 30 years and we don't know when this com box that she talks to Greg through became a thing. So we don't know what capacity she's had for even like any sort of interaction uh, with other people, let alone the, you know, the more complex interactions that you're talking about, like, yeah, you know, falling in love and whatnot. It's also funny to mention too that, that that Greg, who's been alluded to through this entire episode, is actually like the sort of like three hundred and fifty pound man. And when Kelly, uh, when Kelly sees him for the first time, she kind of gives him this kind of like one sober up and down, and says, "Well, holy shit, you know, like <laughs> you're Greg, you know, like totally like not what I expected, right?" He kind of he kind of laughs and you know, kind of right. like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm just your orderly, you know, yeah. that's how I know her, you know. We talk on the com box sometimes, you know, I'm doing her this favor, yeah. you know, because. You know, he basically explains that because her parents are so religious, they they absolutely refuse to let her uh, euthanize herself and pass over to San Junipero. So they're, they're essentially just keeping her in this vegetative state. So Greg, her orderly, has offered to marry her uh, so that she can legally, so that he can legally, like, sign off on the documents or whatever so that she can pass over peacefully into San Junipero. Because in her mind you know, living this kind of artificial life in San Junipero where she can meet people and dance and have fun and stuff like that is is preferable to her to just lying in a hospital bed where she can't move or talk to anyone or whatever, right? And this is the... I lied when I said that we had just had the last reveal. This is when we find out that Yorkie's planning on dying. This is a totally right. new revelation. Yeah, because Kelly didn't know that. Sorry. Yeah, it, Kelly, it Kelly, kind of... Kelly had only been referencing the fact that, or sorry, Yorkie had only been referencing the fact that she was going to be getting married. We had no yeah, idea that there was, was an ulterior motive die. or a plan for why this was going to be happening. And this kind of catches Kelly off guard, kind of blindsides Kelly. Right. You know, um, and she says the great line, which, which ties in the Belinda Carlisle song too, because they're talking about, you know, how, nowadays like you know you, you don't have to actually just die and 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 you know and, and be done with it kind of thing that you can just sort of continue on in this kind of digital realm and kelly says uploaded to the cloud sounds like heaven 
And I thought that was very, I thought it was a very sort of astute line because it really does seem like our world is kind of going in that direction. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just with all the, you know, uh, technological advances and the idea of the singularity and the cloning and the fact that our brains operate on an electrical signal that could potentially be converted into like a binary you know, sort of code or whatever. The the idea that that one day we could perhaps upload our own consciousness into like a digital format or whatever is fascinating. And yeah, and it, it was just a cool linguistic catch that uh, that Broker, you know, made that yeah. made that connection between, you know, we've given the idea of what what is actually a very physical space, which we see in the closing credits of you know, like the cloud is not an ethereal cloud, like it's a system of machines that are plugged in with wires. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's this like spiritual connection between this name that we've given this ethereal thing and our own totally, yeah, concept the, the, of the, the whole biblical, you know, uh, allegories about you know like heaven being uh, up up in the clouds and the sky and angels floating on a cloud and all this kind of stuff, and then the idea of the uh, you know the cloud itself as it as it applies to technology and everything, and the and, and the linking of these two concepts, I thought was smart. I mean, um, so then. Kelly in this this sweeping romantic gesture she says you know listen Greg like you're a good dude but I feel like it would mean more coming from me yeah and she asks to be she asks to be plugged in which is a big yeah. no-no like yeah. it's off hours but she just wants five minutes yeah. so that she can propose to uh to Yorkie he very this... reluctantly kind of jacks her in for like five minutes you know like uh, at the risk of his own uh job probably right um so yeah, that's that's one of the big like emotional moments is when when Kelly proposes to Yorkie and Yorkie says yes. Yeah. Um, this is the moment I was <laughs> I alluded to earlier where I said I had this really like like fear that Charlie Brooker was doing something really sadistic because uh, you know I remember this is this is I remember watching it and it seems so heartbreaking. You know this this paralyzed you know elderly woman lying in this bed that's never been able to live that just wants so badly to pass into this other environment. Then you have this other woman who's really like for some reason that's not revealed yet like a- really anti San Junipero and wants to like just die naturally and like does not want to cross over permanently and all this kind of stuff for reasons that still haven't been revealed. And um and I had this like twisted fear. Uh, when when she actually proposes to Yorkie, you just see the look in Yorkie's eyes, like, oh my god, of course I would rather marry you, who I'm like really in love with, than this guy that I've never actually met. You know, I had this total fear that Charlie Brooker was going to once again veer it into the like you know total like fuck you territory and have Kelly then deny her uh, request for euthanasia so that she would just have to like die normally and and never go into uh, San Junipero or because even for... like even like pull the plug but not upload her yeah yeah like <laughs> like, like you euthanize her on purpose but like bar yeah like deny her her uh, uploading into San Junipero I thought that would just be like the meanest coldest you know kind of ending uh, however luckily Charlie Brooker saved that for the next episode uh, shut up and dance so. So you're safe in San Junipero until you finish and then click on episode five in which all, <laughs> all of your most horrible fears <laughs> about where everything is going are are, are, are confirmed. Right. Uh, so uh, so they end up getting married. Yeah. Uh, Yorkie is euthanized. She ends up in San Junipero in yeah. this, uh, you know, she's she's so thrilled. Like yeah. she's She takes her glasses off. She takes her glasses she off. The she's glasses done with anymore. the artifice now. Yeah. She's running through the sand. It seems like she's really like feeling the sand on her feet for the first yeah, time. Like she's, she's home. Like this is the first time that it's not yeah. a projection. It's not it's not she a, really a vacation. Her, yeah. Like this is her this home is now. now where she is permanently and Which uh, is I mean like performance wise, that's one of the most like just just touching yeah. and and uh, well, it starts with like this this sort of blurry dissolve, you know, from reality into into San Junipero, and another one of those like really beautiful 
sort of ambient Clint Mansell like musical cues you know it's like really pretty and everything's kind of overexposed and she's on the beach and she takes her glasses off and the waves are rolling in and she's like you know kicking the sand and everything like that this this is another one of those hilarious kind of like world mechanics you know conundrums I was thinking right because because then you know you, Kelly Kelly pulls up in her jeep you know her dream catcher jeep with a bunch of uh you know beer cans whatever like tie, tied to the back like a just married kind of thing and and you know and and Yorkie approaches you know her and she says something like you know you you didn't even get dressed up for me or something like that because Yorkie's just wearing like her regular you know kind of boring clothes her sedate clothes and uh and so she's sort sort of Yorkie's kind of like oh sorry and she she just kind of suddenly dreams herself into this wedding dress this white you know flowing wedding dress with this veil and everything like that and then I remember thinking like if you can just sort of close your eyes and and manifest you know, physical changes in San Junipero. Like, could somebody just walk into Tucker's and just like cl- just manifest an AK forty seven into their hand and just start mowing everybody down in the bar? Like, could you just could you just like uh, manifest a rocket launcher and just like fire it into the billboard for the Lost Boys or something? Like, like how? Where, what's the limit of of like? Can you can you only manifest just sort of like y- your own clothing and hairstyle and stuff like that, or could you literally like manifest like napalm or something like that and just like just like <laughs> Jesus nuke Christ. the village? I see that you weren't afraid to get dark in your imagination of how this. No, I gotta. Go. I've gotta do right by Charlie Brooker. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the the marital bliss does not last for long. When Yorkie, who's just thrilled with this new reality that she has, she says, you know, she can't wait for Kelly to join her, and asks her to to join her in this forever, um, which leads Kelly to tell Yorkie to go fuck herself because, right. li- like, you don't know me, and she reveals why she's yeah uh, anti. San Junipero in that she had like we we knew all along that her or I guess we found out a little bit earlier that her yeah, husband, husband opposed quote it unquote left her and we we knew that her husband didn't want to go to San Junipero but this is when we find out that they had a daughter mm-hmm. and the reason that the husband didn't want to go to San Junipero was because the daughter died before San Junipero was a thing right before it was even a possibility and so the husband is gone and Kelly lets us know that she doesn't have any any hope or any like spiritual connection to an afterlife. As like as far as she knows, San Junipero is your only option. It's right. either San Junipero or non-existence. Or the void, um, the screaming void. Yeah. And, and so you know she's she's trying to she's really trying to. And, and this is I think Guguma Batara's best performance oh. in the whole thing is her wrestling with these conflicting emotions where she's like, I could have eternity or at least Mm -hmm. a huge chunk of time with this woman, Mm -hmm. or I can honor the family that I had before who I don't want to show any disrespect to, but who I believe are dead in every sense of the word. And I am not going to go and see them in this afterlife. All I would be doing is giving up my consciousness for the sake of honoring their choices and the choices that they didn't have. It's a really heartbreaking scene because you know you've seen these women through through the the, the the you know the previous scenes in the episode like meet and court each other and be all like nervous and then break through their emotional barriers and make love and then meet each other in real life and then Kelly proposes to her and they get married you've seen this whole arc and then and then there's this point where Yorkie just like pushes it too far like she's just kind of naive in a way because like you know she's you know so concerned with her own sort of situation everything that's happened to her that she doesn't really ever stop to think about like what happened to Kelly or what brought Kelly to that point and stuff like that and she keeps saying like oh don't worry about it you know just come with me and like oh forget it you know and also and, Ke- and Kelly just slaps her really hard across the face you know and she says like fuck you you know she's like you know and she tells her all this stuff you know I I had a daughter and she died when she was 
39 and my husband and I, and he didn't have a, you know, like they offered him the chance to go to San Junipero and he wouldn't do it because he said, you know, she didn't have that chance and she had to just die and become like nothing or whatever. So, you know, how could I go on and like live on and, and have fun and have all these other adventures and stuff like that when she didn't have the chance to. And so he just dies. And, and, and so she's like, you know, feels the same way. Like, you know, like I have to kind of, honor them and, and and make the same decision and you know and stuff because it would be selfish of me or whatever to to you know to expect more than that and you know and Yorkie's kind of like you know oh, I'm sorry I didn't know and stuff she's like yeah because you like you never asked you didn't care to you know it's all been about you and stuff like that and if you if you don't understand that I, I have like a whole situation of my own then yeah. you can go fuck yourself and and she basically like takes off on Yorkie or whatever. and it's, it's yeah, really and heartbreaking because Yorkie's just like completely gutted right she's yeah. staring at her with these puppy dog and, eyes and I know that like, I know that she is like she is mad at Yorkie but it's also like so much of it is her dealing with all these conflicting emotions within herself because it's not like yeah. Kelly has never tried to get what she wants at the expense of other people before right, right? like that's her MO <laughs> as yeah. far as we're concerned and you know she wasn't pushing to find out more about Yorkie either. Yeah. It's just you know now she's come to this this crucial point where she's going to be dying soon. And now instead of it being a choice that she's made and made peace with, yeah. now she's presented with this other option. Yeah. And you know that's bound to manifest in some kind of fury. Yeah, and and it's interesting because yeah, like she you know she's taking it out in Yorkie kind of like she's sort of you know pretty pretty harsh with Yorkie, especially since it's like their wedding night, you know. Yeah. But she's also you get the feeling she's kind of having a dialogue with herself, you know, because she's really wrestling with herself because obviously she's grown to really you know care about Yorkie and and no, oh, she uh, pretends that she doesn't. Like she yeah. tries, she really, she really she tries, tries to, to be hard. sting. She says like the only reason I did this was out of pity. Yeah, and I mean like, that's a word that. Like that's where that Yorkie used to describe how Greg felt about her. And it's like, yeah, you know, he's a good guy, sting. but I know he pities me. Like she's just she's being as harsh as she can yeah, be in that moment. Yeah. It's almost like she's punishing Yorkie for her own kind yeah, of or like, I mean, maybe, second thoughts. Yeah, or and it, it, it could be that she's, you know, subconsciously trying to sabotage the relationship. Like, I'm gonna say the most horrible thing that I can possibly think yeah. of to get you to run away. And people do that all the time, you know. People uh push people away emotionally, uh, when they when they get scared or they feel like they can't handle it, they're confronted with things about themselves that they they're maybe not ready to address or whatever. And that's one of the things people do is they, 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 they lash out and they purposely say things or do things that they know are going to really throw a huge wrench into the relationship with someone because it's almost easier just to have them leave than to actually be forced to confront these like really serious emotional to cross these bridges with someone, you know, yeah. when, when you spent so much time just being gu- guarded and on your own. Yeah. So then Kelly tries to even leave the situation. I mean, she doesn't, she clearly doesn't entirely want to leave because she right. doesn't actually leave. Like she has the op- I I get the sense that you can leave San Juan Apparel when you mm-hmm. want. Like you're not necessarily beholden to the time limit. I don't yeah, know you could probably you can like un- unplug, unplug yourself, right? I mean, you could probably turn off or even just say like I'm going to shut off for a year or something. Or I don't know. Like I mean, I suppose you could kind of technically uh, kill yourself. You I, could just I, say like I I no longer want to be. I just mean in Kelly. I mean Kelly because she's at that point she's still visiting. Right. 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 right so yeah. I don't know if there's a an, an exit button, but she drives off and she drives off and you know drives yeah, the car as fast as she can. Starts being as reckless as possible. Well, she's just heard the whole story about what happened to Yorkie, and uh, I think in a way she kind of wants to feel what it might have been like to go through something like that. But of course she has her pain slider set to zero. Right. But she basically accelerates her jeep, uh, you know, pedal to the metal into this like. What is it? Sort of like a little, not a bearing wall, but it's like a little, um, what do you call it? Like it's a, it's a do not cross kind of thing. Anyway, anyway, there's actually a really cool uh, camera shot there 
where uh, she's basically like accelerating herself into this sort of uh, wall. And when she hits, you know, she's obviously thrown out of the vehicle. Like she goes, she smashes right through the front windshield and roll, you know, flies over the hood of the car and rolls, you know, into the sand, you know, kind of, but, but the camera shot doesn't cut. Like, it's like you, you see her approaching this thing really fast and you see her hit and then you kind of fly through the windshield with her. And then she kind of rolls in front of the camera until she comes to a stop, but she's okay. Uh, you know, because she's in a, you know, an artificial environment and then Yorkie walks up to her. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's almost, I mean, I think it says on the car on the clock at 1159 or whatever. Right. So it's like York- Yorkie walks up to her and is like standing over and kind of extends her hand and Kelly kind of like takes her hand, but then immediately it, it, it turns midnight and she's like sucked out of the, out of the environment. So no matter, no matter how hurtful she was to Yorkie, and even though she was driving at literally like 80 miles an hour to get away from yeah, her, yeah. you know, K- Kelly's or sorry, Yorkie's hurt, but she's not done. Like that wasn't that wasn't enough to scare her off. Yeah, because of... she's in San Junipero now. You know what I mean? It's like she's she's finally in an environment where she can like have a life and walk around and, 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 and feel things in this kind of tactile way, even if it's not real. You know, it seems real, you know, and, and I think she, she probably senses too. she probably senses that Kelly's not like 100 percent, you know, convicted about. You know what I mean? There's like a slight hesitation or something, you know, because I mean, she walks toward her. I mean, she she goes to her and reaches her hand out almost like, you know, yeah. come with me. I'll help you back up. And then Kelly actually takes her hand. But then immediately, like Cinderella, you know, the clock yeah. strikes 12 and she's like pulled back out. We're now finishing off the episode. Yeah. Kelly is in the real world. Very sick. Um, And she makes the decision. She says, it's it's time for me to go. Yeah, and she's really so you can hear her like very labored breathing, and she she you see her spend uh, you know then uh, another you know I don't know how how much time it's supposed to be this past but days or weeks or whatever at the assisted living facility with very labored breathing and very hard for her to get around. You can tell that she's in a lot of pain and that she's you know she's ready to you know she's ready to go. She's 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 had her time and she's she's ready to go. So she she ultimately decides yeah it's you know it, it's time for me to go. We see the. Uh the fluids start to enter her body, which we saw because she's getting when, euthanized when, too. Yeah, you know she's she's um, it doesn't really say that per se. It doesn't really specifically spell that out in the early, earlier in the episode, but, but but it's it's the same process we saw Yorkie going through when she was being yeah when she's being euthanized and she's and she says to her care worker you know they're si- they're sitting out and then watching the sunset or whatever and she says you know well I guess I guess it's about time to get on with it or you know for 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 all the rest of it or whatever and um and then yeah you see um. I think that's actually te- technically where the episode, there's kind of like two different endings of the episode, but I think like Kelly and her care worker, like she kind of says, you know, okay, like, you know, I'm ready to be done with this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And then it so cuts that, to yeah, San so Junipero where Yorkie gets in, like, you know, she's walking through San Junipero, this kind of beautiful day and she gets into her well, car, which is this like red convertible. The license plate says Yorkie one. And she kind of starts driving off down the street, you know, into her whole new life. And, and, and that's when you actually get the first credit where it says like, you know, like director Owen Harris. Because she gets she gets in her car and the Belinda car she puts a cassette tape a cassette tape if you remember those things uh, in in the the tape player and the Belinda Carlisle song Heaven Is a Place on Earth starts playing which which is how the episode started so you get the kind of bookend cyclic kind of vibe and as she drives off to the kind of undisclosed future or whatever down this kind of like picturesque you know country highway or whatever you get your first cut to credits of like director Owen Harris and you think okay that's it it's done like that's the end. But but then, after a couple of credits go, you see her pull up to 
the beach house that that Yorkie's been living in. Yeah. And well, uh, you see Kelly. You see Kelly go through the whole euthanasia process, where like yeah, oh, oh yeah, the, you see all the fluid goes into the tubes, and she she dies, and the camera blurs out, and everything like that, and she's gone from right. the real world. Um. Yeah, and then I mean, as interspersed with credits, yeah, you credits see, going through this whole thing. Yeah, you see that Yorkie and and Kelly have decided that they're going to pursue this relationship together. Yeah, Kelly, Kelly pulls up, or I mean, Yorkie pulls up to the beach house, and for a second there you think, like, well, maybe she's just, like, living in Kelly's beach house now, or maybe Kelly, like, left her the theoretical beach house or whatever. But then she honks the horn, and as the climactic, you know, Belinda Carlisle song is playing, you see uh, Kelly, the young, you know, beautiful Kelly emer- emerge from the side of the house, kind of smiling at her, like, you know, and gets in the Jeep with her. And, uh... And then the two of them all happy and laughing and stuff like that, realizing they're going to like, you know, have this eternity and San Junipero together, like take off into the sunset. But then it keeps going. I can't remember the the exact sequence, but like, you know, uh, oh, you know, shit, go, it sorry, goes to yeah. all the, the technological stuff. Like, you know, you see, right. you see them like, you know, drive off into the sunset and then there's like another title card, you know, like cinematography or music or whatever. And you think, OK, that's it. But then you see like uh, the actual facility that they're in and it's like Tucker like because the name of the bar that they were partying in is like Tucker's or through the whole thing and this place is actually called like T-U-C-K-R or something like uh, you know I, I forget what it's actually called but it's like you know like you know, whatever like binary storage facilities or something I don't know some some, right. some you know cyberpunky thing it's very much like the final shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah it where is you're, kind of yeah. where you're kind of where you're, you know the camera's it pulls back, back, and you see just like the scope of yeah. this project. Well, for, first you just see like a sort of an extreme close up of this kind of mechanical arm screw. These kind of like um, almost look like uh, uh, like fuses, like, almost yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like fuse, like fuses, like getting screwed into a fuse box. And it says like uh, there's a there's a thing that says San Junipero, and it says you know like whatever like M two forty one or whatever. And you see the, the well, you see two the two new, of them, and they get two new in kind of fuses yeah. screwed into this facility by this mechanical arm. But then you see there's all these other as the camera pulls back, there's all these other blocks of this stuff that, that might not be San Junipero it might be like other things and other places and stuff like that and this is all interspersed with Kelly and Yorkie at Tucker's like dancing you know they're like dancing the Pat Benatar song and first it's kind of in like regular speed and then it kind of slows down and becomes more of a close up of them kind of staring at each other and they're smiling and they're back you know in love and they're at Tucker's and they're, they're, they're both dancing this time and having a good time and stuff you like Yorkie's finally learned how to dance you know and but like um but but then the yeah like the final the final fade out you know or crossfade uh, you know like you said is very Raiders of the Lost Ark like where it it pulls back and you actually see the scope of how huge and vast and almost never ending this facility is with just like endless kind of souls plugged into this endless kind of matrix all probably in different places like living in these different environments and it all appears to be like robot controlled like we don't yeah. see any people involved in it it's yeah. just it's just Very these mechanical. mechanical arms moving moving pieces around yeah and it's seemingly happy because you're like oh now they're gonna be like forever in this thing but like but like when you think about it like you know this this tucker systems incorporated is like a physical space right so if there's ever like a war that broke out or like a nuclear bomb blast or like a or like a horrible natural disaster like a like a hurricane or tornado or something or like um you know if anybody ever like you know like if you know if there was like a terrorist act where people like snuck in and you know like blew the place up or whatever then what happens to the people you know like do, do they actually die for real if you just blew the facility up or is it like or is it like the cloud where you know they, there's all all sorts of these places all over the world and they're all constantly being backed up like uh like uh what do you call it a ghost what do you call it a time machine backup where like you know it's constantly like okay well if this facility gets blown up then it just goes back to like a day earlier 
and takes over this other facility across the world or something like yeah. that kind of thing. Like, are they constantly being backed up and, and sent to other places yeah, or is it I vulnerable? I don't know. I don't know. I don't really worry too much about that just because yeah. the time that they have is more yeah. than they had before. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, if there's a... Even if it's just a, an extra year. Yeah. I mean, if there's a power surge and everybody dies, then, I mean, they're not going to know. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just all of a sudden it's going to be gone. I, I wonder, like, you know, and obviously this is like an existential esoteric question that nobody can really answer, but but basically, well, the idea is obviously in the reality of San Junipero, or, or, or not, not the place San Junipero, but the reality of the episode San Junipero, they've obviously figured it a way to kind of like link or link up or, or download like a human consciousness into sort of like a binary form like sort of a electronic uh, like a bunch of zeros and ones that can then be processed into a computer and so forth right so here's the idea if they jacked into you and kind of like downloaded your consciousness into the computer then you know for a second there there'd almost be like two of you you know and then so I mean your your consciousness would still be with you you know right well at least you'd think unless maybe it happened like completely simultaneously you died right at the exact second you were uploaded into San Junipero but the idea is like it's like cloning yourself, right? Like, I mean, the clones of you, you wouldn't be consciously aware of them, like, in, in the sense that, like, they'd each have their own separate consciousness, right? So so would you, as in your physical, like, your thoughts and sense of humor and memory and everything, like, you, like the sort of your, your anima or your soul or your consciousness or whatever you would call that, um, would that still die when you physically died and just this sort of, copy of you this kind of facsimile of you would then live on in like San Junipero or or would you like when your physical body died would you somehow would your essence be somehow then transferred and and suddenly you'd wake up in San Junipero I mean that seems to be the way that they're that they're portraying it in the episode that, that you yourself actually kind of wakes up there and you're like hey look I'm here now right but it seems to me like if you were to sort of copy yourself like if you copy a hard drive, let's say you had an external hard drive and you made a copy of it onto another external hard drive, you would then have two external hard drives that were completely separate. They'd have the same information on them, but they wouldn't be the same thing. Like they wouldn't be the same hard drive, right? So I mean, if you if you copied your consciousness or cloned yourself, or whatever, it wouldn't be like suddenly you were aware of yourself at two different beings simultaneously. It would almost be like a copy of you that was then had your same thoughts and feelings and emotions and stuff. But I don't think you would be f- like physically conscious of yourself in like a secondary form simultaneously right i mean unless there's some way of doing it so that like as you die you are then like transferred over i mean it's interesting i mean there's no actual way to answer this question but yeah i mean in terms of the mechanics of the thing i imagine that they've like it seems like a very polished process that they've figured it out yeah well they figured they're like i mean like i mean we do it already with anesthesiology right like you Mm -hmm. There's stuff that happens in between, but you can just shut down consciousness yeah. in order to get you past that part and into the next. Part. Yeah, they say I've never I've never been completely uh, under like general anesthetic or whatever, but they say that um, it's different than sleeping and dreaming because, you know, when you when you fall asleep at night, I mean, even though you're not like entirely 100 percent conscious of everything that's happened when you woke up, you have that sense that time has passed. Like You have that sense that you've been kind of in dreamland, kind of having this dream or that dream, you know, kind of semi-conscious for like eight hours and you wake back up. But but anyone I've known that's ever had like a serious like surgery or whatever they've been put right under, they say it's literally like they tell you to count backwards from ten or whatever, and you get to like you know like ten, nine, eight, and then you're done. And then they say it's like literally like you and just, then wake, you just up, wake up, in and your it's like twelve room. hours later or whatever, yeah. and you have like no recollection of yeah. anything that's happened. No, that's, that's Suddenly it's just true, like yeah. you, you're out, and then you wake back up, and it's like time has been like paused. Okay, so the the only other really thing that I wanted to touch on, and this is completely getting ahead. Sure. Like, I want to get ahead of it by saying, like, I 
acknowledge the limitations of my own experience in talking about subjects like this. But part of what makes this movie really cool for me is the way that it handles queerness. Right, now, right. I, I am not a person who can speak with authority on this, but I want sure. to say it rather than not say it. And if anybody wants to... I've had you know, some experiences. Tell me, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if, if I am wrong, somebody please tell me and I, I will sure. be happy to like share that, retweet it, give voice to it. But the fact that this, I mean, this is a love story between two women that is totally normalized. This is a future in which two women getting married is just a natural thing that nobody blinks an eye at. But also it pays respect to the fact that Things weren't always that, that way. That things weren't always that way. Yeah. Like, like yeah. that that Yorkie ended up in this situation because her yeah. very religious family couldn't handle the fact that she was a lesbian. You know, that led to her being in this in this state of confinement and you know, it led to her her disability. Yeah. It's really interesting because the episode the way the episode approaches the sort of queer content of the episode, it doesn't make a big deal of it. You know, it's like sometimes you get these things that are really preachy, you know, it's like, you know, this this is a queer movie or this is a queer story dealing with queer issues. This I mean and, and it is. Like I mean this is obviously there it does uh, approach a lot of these subjects in the episode, but it doesn't it doesn't it it does it very organically like, you know, like these are just two people. Like these are just two people uh, that are in this environment that meet and they're drawn to each other and they just happen to be two women. But it doesn't, it's not like really like pat itself on the back for trying to tackle like yeah. issues, quote unquote. You know, and it shouldn't because it, you know, because ultimately, I mean, that's always been my feeling is that people are just people. I never, I try not to get caught up in the nomenclature, you know, of like straight, queer, bisexual, you know, it's a, you know, p- pansexual, polysexual, you know, there's so many different terminologies. But essentially, we're all just people, right? I mean, we're all just people. Uh, you know, and we meet people that we're attracted to for whatever reason. And I think that, you know, I mean, you shouldn't um, give it really much credence to, to what society, uh, you know, how society feels about this or what's legal or, you know, like I, I think people, I mean, and obviously it has to be between consensual adults I'm talking here, right? But, but I think, you know, I just think this is a love story between two human beings. They happen to be two women, but I don't think that that's really the point of it or the issue. And interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, I think Charlie Brooker was talking about this in the TIFF Q&A, and I think he said that originally when he was writing like the first draft of Sandy Dupero, it was a straight, yeah, it was yeah. a man and a woman. And I'm not sure if someone suggested to him that he make it about two women, or if, or if it just kind of happened organically where he thought this would make more sense, you know, you know, in this in this other way. Or I, I'm not exactly sure what the reasoning behind him changing it was, but I'm really glad he did because you know I'm I'm not saying that for any kind of like lascivious reasons. Right? I I just think that the the subtext about Yorkie's parents, you know, not approving of her sexuality is a really important part of the story and like a really heartbreaking part of the story. I mean, the fact that you know she grew up in this religious environment. I don't know if her parents were supposed to be like actually, you know, if her father's like a minister or something, or if they're just like religious you know, in their personal lives or whatever. But the thing is she, she's grown up in this environment that's been completely homophobic and, um, not open to her sexuality. And she's, she tries to come out to her parents and, and tell them about who she is and how she feels and everything like that. And they're just like completely not cool with it, which is obviously a really horrible thing when you, when you have something about yourself that's so deeply personal and you try to talk to, you know, your own family, like your own parents about it. And they don't accept that. Like when they say, no, like that's not, that's not allowed. That's not acceptable. And so the fact that this thing is the catalyst 
for her whole story arc. I mean, this this is the reason why she gets into this car accident and why she becomes paralyzed and spends her whole life in a hospital room and why San Junipero is such an important thing to her and how she winds up there and everything. I think it's a very important part of the story. I don't think it's just like the side thing that's been tacked on, like, oh, let's just make this a queer couple for whatever reason. I think that that element of the story is very important to the story, even though it's not the central element of the story, but that it's it's a very important factor in Yorkie's backstory. And it also, and I don't want to call this like a message episode or like a message show or whatever, you know, because obviously, you know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things going on this episode uh, and a lot of things to ponder but I mean, there there is definitely that element to it. I mean, there is definitely an element of sort of uh, socio political kind of well, statement to it. And if he's, if this is the one where he is trying to be optimistic and saying that like this whole technology thing doesn't have to be superficially horrifying, right? I'm glad that he was like, okay, well, let's look at the whole thing with Black Mirror is let's look at where technology could possibly go right. and. Even if it's horrific, it feels like it could actually happen. Yeah. And so, too, in a positive spin on things, and I, I might just be repeating what I already said, but, I mean, in his optimistic future, queerness is normal. Yeah. And is not a problem. And it's it's like what you described, that, you know, like, people are just people. And, yeah. I mean, like... And especially... As much as, like, what is it, the, the quarry, the quagmire? Oh, the quagmire, like, yeah, yeah. Like, that place exists, and it's just kind of... I mean, it's a bit of a... It's a, a, a dirty secret, but <laughs> yeah. it's normal. Like, yeah. most people know what that place is, and it's it's understood that that's an option sure. if you need to kind of, like, venture outside And I think, I think there's a positive element as well. There's kind of a Gene Roddenberry-type element to this episode, too, where, where in 1967, when the first series of the original Star Trek came out, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry. I, I can't remember what what year the the actual shows take place. Like, it's supposed to be what, like the twenty third century or something. I don't know. But but basically, when he cast the show and and all the people that were were on the Enterprise and like power positions, right? You know, he has all these different races and genders. You know, he has a woman Uhura is like the communications expert, and he has like. Um, uh, you know, as an Asian man, it's just, it just very racially diverse and gender diverse and everything. And the studio was just like, you know, like, what the hell are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. can't, you can't have a woman like on the the, the bridge of the ship. You can't have yeah, this, well, I mean, this in, Asian in guy. the original said, pilot, the, uh, you know, the, the first officer was a woman as well. Unfortunately, yeah. that got, yeah, I think it was his wife, wasn't it? Uh, but, but it's basically like, um, you know the studio's like like what, what are you doing cuz at the time like in the 1960s like that you know that wasn't cool but but Gene Roddenberry was like look like this this is like hundreds of years in the future you don't think we're going to have dealt with these issues by then you don't think that like like women and 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 uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds and sexuality stuff like that are going are going to be aff- afforded the same rights as like you know like white I, I hate to use the terminology but you know like white cisgendered males and stuff like that. I mean uh I mean, I think, you know, and, and kudos to him for doing that. I mean, he, he his his view was that in the future, these things weren't going to be issues and that everybody, regardless of their race or creed or religion or sexual preference or whatever, were all going to be treated like humans and have the same uh, uh, opportunities at the same careers and everything like that. And I think in, in a very small kind of microcosmic way, it's the same thing with the San Junipero episode. I think, you know, the show takes place, as we said, you know, like, quote unquote, five minutes into the future and stuff. And I think that the way that the, you know, um, like the the queer elements of the story are portrayed in this episode uh, without really much fanfare, or kind of like making that big of a deal about it, or I think is indicative of, of how Charlie Brooker 
regards the future, like the socio-political future of humankind or whatever, the fact that, you know, in 10 or 20 years or whatever, this hopefully won't be a big deal or won't be anything to say, hey, you know, what about this plot element of this episode? I mean, it's just like I said, I mean, it's an episode about two people, two people that come together in in this very strange setting and and, and, and affect each other emotionally and come together. And they just happen to be two women, but it could have been two men or a man and a woman or could have been all sorts of things, a trans couple, you know. I mean, it's essentially... And this more than anything deals with the sort of the soul or the um, the con- consciousness, let's call it. Um, and that doesn't really have a gender or a sexual preference or anything like that. I mean, your your consciousness kind of transcends, you know, your physicality or, or, or these kind of um, labels or nomenclature or whatever. I mean, we're talking kind of about, I hesitate to use the word soul, but because that seems to be overtly tied into like Judeo-Christian mythology. But I mean, let's call it a, a consciousness or an anima or a spirit or something like that. I mean, this this is very much an episode about that kind of spirit or consciousness in people and how it, you know, transferring from place to place, but how people still find each other and connect to one another. Cause I think human beings have an inherent desire to, to connect, to come together, at least for a time, uh, you know, and affect each other. And, and, and I think that the episode deals with that. And I, th- I think the, the sort of, um, sexuality and gender issues and stuff is, is just sort of like a sidebar to that, you know, I mean, I think uh I think the way it's handled in this episode is is very um maturely and empathetically and open-mindedly the fact that it's not the attention is not overtly drawn to the to the the specifics of it. Yeah, but it shows the horror of the past, the optimism mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. hopefully the very near future will look like. Yeah. Without without, you know, erasing without without pretending that everything is yeah. okay now. Yeah, because it's right. not 100% okay. But I think op- optim- optimism is, is the key uh, word that you said there because like like we, di- like we discussed earlier, like, like many Black Mirror episodes deal with the kind of horror or kind of horrific or nightmarish scenarios, the kind of cautionary tales of things that can happen with technology or the integration of certain technologies in society. And I think this is one of the rare episodes so far anyway, uh, you know, that kind of says, you know, hey, like technology is not necessarily all bad. Like, it's not inherently um, evil. Yeah, like it's just kind of like how we we deal with it. And a lot of the episodes are like, well, you know, if if this goes too far, or that goes too far. If we don't, if we're not careful with this or that, this could happen. But this episode happens to say, hey, you know, like maybe you know, there's sort of a, a positive side to this as well. Maybe maybe we can do things with technology that actually kind of improve. I mean, the idea of giving like sort of like a like a uh, quadriplegic or, or someone, you know, in a coma or, or, you know, the idea of giving someone like that a chance to actually run around on a beach or make love or go dancing or whatever. I mean, that that is like a very positive thing. And um, yeah, I think uh, I mean, if you just look at like, like, just say something uh, just uh, like the Internet itself, for example, I mean, it, like it's like you said, it's not inherently good or evil. It's a tool. Obviously, it's it's done wonderful things in terms of communication. I mean, I could just like send an email to somebody in in Japan, and and they'll get it in like you know two seconds. And and you know, uh, I have I've kept in touch with friends all over the world through Facebook and through email and everything like that. And it's a great tool for researching uh, things when you're doing writing or or. Um, uh, you know, just learning about the world, you know, but also, I mean, there's a dark side. Obviously, there's the dark net, there's the, the things going on in the dark net, the deep web, drugs and child pornography and assassins, you know, the Silk Road and all this kind of stuff. You know, you hear all these horror stories of these uh, 
very bizarre and dark things going on online. But I mean, it's just it's just like anything else, right? I mean, uh, you know, humanity is a very yin yang sort of uh, concept. I mean, there, 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 there's there's good people, there's bad people, there's everything in between. Most of the things I think that take place in this world are in the vast gray area that kind of lies between good and evil or light and dark, or whatever. I think think a lot of things are very complex and and technology is just one of those things you know i mean i think it can be used for for great good uh you know in, the, in terms of like medical uh research and doctors and technology and surgeries and helping people out that have been in accidents and helping people connect all over the world there's also an incredible dark side to that too but i mean you know i think that's just part of the the human condition the human struggle i mean there's 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 light and dark aspects to this world and and we as people have to choose you know what we want to focus on and and sort of allow into our personal bubble you know and that's pretty much Black Mirror in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> right there, right there. So if you've got any words left in your lungs, the way that we normally wrap these up is just real quick uh, rating. So Netflix has switched over to thumbs up and thumbs down. So whether this movie oh. gets a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Like a Siskel and Ebert kind the, of thing. The, well, the star rating is gone. I am at the mercy right. of what Netflix has switched to. Um, and then if there's an MVP, so either in front of or behind the camera, who's your, your MVP from San Junipero? Oh, God. There's so many, man. There's so many. Can I have like five MVPs? I mean, I want I want to say Charlie Brooker just for, you know, being like creating the series and writing the episode and stuff like that. Obviously, but I mean, the cast is is terrific too. I mean, bo- both of the lead actors, you know, Mackenzie Davis and um, uh, how do you pronounce it again? Gugu Mbatha Ra. Mbata. Mbata. Um, you know, are totally great, and the cinematography is totally great. The director was great. Um, Clint Mansell's score. Maybe that should be my MVP. I mean, I mean, music and sound design obviously is like such an important part of cinema, but this episode just has such a a beautiful, um, like I said before, almost like an umbilical kind of uh, like a, like in utero kind of like this kind of gently pulsating kind of um, ambient kind of lulls you into the mood this dreamlike it kind of weaves you into this web, uh, you know, and so so props to Clint Mansell you know, uh, for for really creating a beautiful score amidst a whole sea of other great scores that he's done. And uh, am I am I giving my thumbs up? Is this my... I think <laughs> it's very clear that this <laughs> is yeah, a thumbs up. I'm giving up. A, a very enthusiastic <laughs> thumbs up, bo- both in the real world and in the virtual uh, world to this episode. I mean, I think I think it's a I think Black Mirror is a great show. I think uh, like any anthology series, you know, it's it's hit or miss. I mean, there's some episodes that really resonate with me, and others that I didn't like quite as much. But I mean, it's like that with any even even my beloved Twilight Zone. You know, there's some episodes that are just blow my mind, and others I could take or leave. But but I think you know when you take chances like this with an anthology series, and every episode's a whole different story in a different world with different characters and stuff. You know, you, you you're never gonna gonna hit it out of the park every single one but i think this show is consistently trying to say something interesting or provoke some kind of thought or dialogue about about something you know worthy and interesting of discussion but this specific episode season three episode four san junipero i think he did knock it out of the park um i think you know and i know the episode has a lot of detractors that think maybe it's too too emo or too emotional or it's too happy for the general format of the show or whatever but i personally and i get that i get that but i personally um, was really moved by this episode, and you know, I just, I just thought it was a great hour of television. It was, it was provocative. It was touching, and and really well acted, and, ju- and just, I, I just think the whole experience of uh, 
of this particular hour of television was really satisfying um, for me personally anyway. So I'm, I'm going to give it the big, the big ups. All right. For me, thumbs up. Absolutely. Um, I'll keep my MVP short and sweet. I'm giving it to uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra uh, just mainly for that, that scene right after the wedding. I felt like that was the most, that was the most powerful part of the whole thing for me. That slap, that facial slap. The the slap, the freak out, the the rant, the just just everything about that scene. That's that was the where I felt the most during yeah, yeah. during the episode. And uh, yeah, I mean, most of the feelings that I have watching Black Mirror are ones of horror, despair, <laughs> and fear. Yeah. So just just abject horror and dread. So I, I so I appreciate that. Um, it's like a calm in the eye of the storm. This episode, yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. it's like a it's like a calm in the eye of the storm. But you have the option to just watch it in isolation, so you can just like pretend the storm isn't there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Jeremy, is there anywhere that people can find you, follow you, to keep talking to you if you want, or oh god, you want to plug? Um, if not, that's fine too. Yeah, I'll totally plug. Um, I uh, I I am an associate producer on uh, this amazing new documentary about the filmmaker David Lynch. Um, it's called David Lynch: The Art Life. I'm super proud of it. It almost I felt like it almost didn't happen. I got involved with this thing probably about like seven years ago or something back in 2011. Um, and uh you know uh, just you know it was a, it was a thing that that I that I really was excited about being involved with and and it just seemed like years and years and years went by and i just was feeling like you know i, w- I wasn't sure if it was even going to happen uh you know and and then finally um uh earlier on this year it was finally completed and and came out uh to 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 great reviews and and um and i thought you know okay we we, we've made i mean i I say we've made it in in the loosest sense possible because i I barely had anything to do with it i'm one of i'm one of about like 30 or 40 associate producers on the thing (laughs) but but uh but basically um i thought that we had made this this little indie uh, you know kind of documentary that might play in like you know uh documentary festivals and might get like a sort of a limited release on tv or something like that but but um i'm happy to announce that it was uh it was accepted into the esteemed criterion collection this year it just came out i think september 28th on the criterion collection both uh blu-ray and dvd formats um it's a great documentary uh not just about david lynch i mean obviously it's going to appeal to fans of david lynch and his work but it is just a great documentary about uh like a creative person about the creative spirit and the drive to, to do creative things, even though, you know, it might not be the most stable life choice uh, or the most lucrative financial plan or whatever, but the idea that some people just can't do anything else other than follow their dream to, to, to make things and kind of follow their, and in the film, like I, I always say the film, you know, it didn't have to specifically be about David Lynch. It could have been about a, a sculptor or a dancer or a, a singer. It, it just, it just embodies the creative spirit so perfectly and, and all the struggles that one has to go through in order to, to get to this place where they can just create. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to plug that. It's called David Lynch, the art life. It's, it's out now um, for purchase and online rental and everything. So check that out. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, uh, it's a really great doc about, uh, about an artist just doing his thing. Right on, man. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been long overdue having you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, man. I, I miss being in here, and uh, I really enjoy doing these things. Like I said, this is the first time I've ever just been flying solo here. Uh, you know, Chris was with us the first time, and uh, Victor was with me uh, last time. So it's fun to just uh, free free falling, as Tom Petty <laughs> would say. 
All right. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again. Thank you so much. There you have it. That's everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. I'll give you a little bit of a sneak peek at the sorts of things that you can find at netflix.ca for this episode. We've got a link off to Lexi Alexander's episode of How Did This Get Made, where she talked about making Punisher Warzone. We've got the Daily Beasts interview with Charlie Brooker and Gugu Mbata Ra. That's the part where Charlie Brooker talks about breaking format for the sake of sticking it to his fans who think that he's just a sociopath who wants to ruin your day. Also found Nick Cave's review of Mother and Son. We've got the link off to a piece that Charlie Brooker wrote for The Guardian explaining the name Black Mirror. As well, you can see a trailer for David Lynch, The Art Life. I've also linked off to the uh, three past episodes that we referenced in this episode. The word episode is starting to lose all meaning for me right now. So the three that you can find there are episode 66, where I talked about Jaws with Jeremy Hobbs, the guy that you just listened to for quite a while, and Victor Laurentiis. Episode 74 had me talking to Rob McDougal about Back to the Future Part 2. And on episode 80, I talked about The Guest with Jason R. Gray. As well, at the bottom, you'll find links off to pretty much every other movie and TV series that we mentioned, whether on Netflix or Amazon. Normally, I would read them all off, but quite frankly, Jeremy is something of a tank when it comes to making references to other works. And I'm not sure if I have the breath in my lungs to read off the list. So just check it out at netflix.ca on the show notes for this episode. Just let you know real quick that we are on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix. If Twitter's your bag, you can find us at Netflix Pod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. And we're on SoundCloud and Instagram as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd, the social media movie watching diary review thing as Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support this show, there are a few ways you can do so. One is by heading over to iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you, as well as to boost us up the rankings. Even if you're not going to listen to every episode, it's handy to have it there and to let other people know what we're doing. You can also contribute directly to this project by way of our Patreon campaign. That's a monthly patronage program where you can contribute as little as $1 a month to help us keep doing what we're doing. You can pledge your support at patreon.com and searching for Netflix or by hitting the support Netflix button at the top of our website, which is once again, netflix.ca. This podcast is produced and edited by yours truly, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you very sincerely and ever so much for listening to this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet. <laughs>